You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith and welcome to the show. The interview subject I've got prepared for you is Greg Moffat, a.k.a. Damien Gregori. Greg was the keyboard player in Cradle of Filth. He appeared on the EP V Empire or Dark Fairy Tales in Palestine. can also be read as Vampire, I suppose. And the big one. He appeared on one of the two albums for the band that truly matter. Dusk and Her Embrace, the Stuart Anstis edition. I was compelled to reach out to Greg because I've made a decision that I want to track down every member of Cradle of Filth, and there are 26 in all, that have appeared on a studio recording and have a chat. This is another one of those conversations in a similar vein to the one that was conducted with Stuart and Nick, Nick Barker that is, Greg goes there. He tells me about his thoughts on many topics related to his time in Cradle of Filth, for which I'm appreciative, I must say. Something else. Greg hosts a podcast series called Legalize Freedom. So around about halfway through the conversation, I'll make it very clear when we're about to transition and talk about many topics related to his excellent podcast series, Legalize Freedom, I know many of you out there don't like politics and social issues and all of that sort of shit. I get that. Some of you just want to tune into the cradle stuff and the music stuff. So here's what I'll say. Because I'll make it so clear that we're transitioning into talking about subject matter not even related to music, tune out. Simple as that. But I do encourage you to to stick around and have a listen to what we've got to say because I do believe we cover some important topics and Greg's an extremely intelligent fellow, it needs to be said. So do listen to his podcast series. It's easily found on YouTube, Legalize Freedom. Just put a number one as in numeral one afterwards. We do talk about um, how you can find him and his podcast series at the end of the podcast episode proper. So anyway, here he is, Greg Moffat, who used to be the keyboard player in Cradle of Filth. I had a fellow called Arthur hit me up from your part of the world, and I'm not sure whether he knows you or not, but he certainly said that he'd, uh, he was aware that you worked in a church or you had an association with a local church there. Hit me up on Instagram, mm-hmm. and, and he, sh- he sent to me an interview that you appeared on, which I think was the Metal Island podcast, and said, hey, look. Oh, good. I, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. thinking of sending you that one because that's, that's, one of the, that's probably the best one I've done. I'm glad I listened to it then, so I'm not going to ask you the same questions. There's a few triggers there. More catalysts, as I call them, but I certainly won't be asking you the same questions because that's so people can listen to that interview if they want to dive into, you know, your, your entry. And uh, I guess the most interesting thing from that conversation was the catalyst for your exit. So mm. I guess I'll lead with that because you said that Nick sacked you, or Nick was the person that said to you that he felt, or maybe the band felt that you were holding them back, which uh, Nick didn't mention that when I spoke to him, actually, not that I've there's so, been so many members in Cradle, which, of course, I'll dive into throughout the conversation as well. But um, he didn't mention that. So I was surprised to hear that in some ways. Um, but you also said something interesting, which Nick referred to, which was that the dynamic between Nick and Danny was often confrontational. Now, for you, looking back on your time in Cradle of Filth, which is unbelievably a quarter of a century ago, I feel old myself just saying that, you can believe that it's that long ago what do you think nick meant by you holding them back 
Um, I just think it was it was code for you know they, uh, when I say they, but you know one or more people um, who decided that you know something had to change. Um, so it was code for uh, just basically you know you have you have to go because we don't we we know there's internal problems here. We don't really know how to fix it. So you, you see this in personal relationships and people just make arbit- arbitrary changes in order to try and, you know, roll the dice and see if that fixes it. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't clash with anyone else in the band. Uh, everybody pretty much clashed with everybody else, apart from maybe me and, and, and Rob, because um, we just got on so well. But so I think holding them back was basically, uh, unless somebody can come forward, uh, Nick or Danny or anyone else and, and, after this amount of time, who really cares? But and actually articulate what was meant by that, because I don't really understand in what way I might have been doing that. Um, I was doing what I was required to do. I was contributing. I was doing my best. So I think that, and you can see this throughout the whole history of the band, um, some f- form, different forms of internal tension, and something has to give. People leave, people are sacked, people are brought in. It works for a while, it doesn't work, people go. So I honestly think it, it was just a kind of a cipher, a code for once again, we find ourselves um, with internal conflict. So what will we do this time? What do we normally do? We normally get rid of someone. Um, so, you know, it's, this time it's going to be you. What might have been, what conversations might have led up to that? I'm not privy to, obviously. And I think Nick was probably given the duty because I always got on very well with Danny. And I'd imagine that he wouldn't have wanted to, even though he was there at the time, I'd imagine he wouldn't have wanted to be the one to say that because um, he might not actually have felt that. So Nick was kind of like the enforcer, if you see what I mean, the heavy. Okay, sure. so yeah. we, we got we to gotta, we gotta whack this guy. So you got the duty. <laughs> yeah, it seems a bit heavy handed. Uh, in hindsight, particularly if if yourself, I mean, you'd remember you were an adult at that stage. What what the reasons? Possibly yeah, no, could no have... I can't can't say the same can't say the same for everybody in the band, but uh... yeah, the look that dynamic in that band. I've I've probably had more conversations with people in that band as a as a journalist because uh, I am a journalist, by the way. I'm, I've been to uni and got the qualifications, so I think I can say that. <laughs> Effectively, I know most journalism journal, journalists aren't worth a goddamn thing these days, but uh, most of them are bloody activists instead of truly curious about things but i'm i'm genuinely curious about cradle of filth because they're a band that i grew up with and i've got to say i stopped, i've probably stopped listening to the band about 20 years ago but it's in, it's an imprint it's like morbid angel with me morbid angel and faith no more megadeth primus there's a few bands there's five or six bands aussie where it's it's the stuff that i listened to as, as a teenager growing up in the mid 90s when hardly anybody listened to heavy metal back then certainly nobody i knew i sort of isolated and listened to it all by myself so i could form my own views about things and you guys to me were like superheroes i had a big poster of you were in it actually a big poster of this topless girl i don't know whether you remember it it came with the dusk vinyl and it was this beautiful topless girl surrounded by you guys looking intensely evil do you remember that take that photo shoot in particular Oh yeah, vividly, of course. Yeah, so I remember most things about that time vividly, and um, yeah, that was the I think it was a limited edition poster, and it folded out. Yeah, Correct. so yeah, that yeah. was there was one one photo shoot that we did for the album, um, which lasted a whole day, basically down in London, and that was one of the setups we had was that banqueting table. So yeah, I remember it clearly. Yes. 
great picture. I had it for a long time, and of course, that was I got that vinyl back in '96 or something like that. So uh, it might have been a bit later. Either way, uh, it was certainly in the mid '90s. But uh, of course, I've lost that picture. But it's the one thing I wish I'd kept. Actually, from back in those days, God knows it hung on my wall. It hung on some share houses that I lived in. It was sometimes it was the only poster that I had up. But um, you guys, to me, just looked like the archetypal black metal band. You just had that, you had a look going on, and I could tell you guys weren't Scandinavian too. And of course, I love the Scandinavian, all of the Scandinavian metal bands. I just, I, I more or less think, you know, it's a broader topic for me to dive into. But that if it wasn't for Scandinavians, I don't know whether metal would have resurged in the, uh, had the resurgence in the early 2000s. And it was really truly left to you guys in the late 90s there after Sepultura sort of broke apart and Pantera sadly splintered. It was Cradle and Strappy Young Lad. People forget that, actually, that it was you guys on Dusk and Strappy Young Lad with City in 1996 and 1997 that were the were the high watermark because I don't, I don't truly count Fear Factory in a part of that. I just don't think it connected with metal fans the way City was from Strapping and Dusk did for you. But you must, you must feel a, a sense of pride when you look back on that album, because uh, you mentioned that you felt that it would be in the top 100 uh, metal albums released maybe in the 90s or ever, but I certainly think ever, maybe in the top 10, actually. Um, so do you, do, you, do you feel, do you have fond memories of the recording sessions and, uh, you know, when the album was released and seeing its success? Well, yeah, very much so. As with everything, with speaking personally, my time in the band, it's always tinged with, you know, some slight regret and, you know, what could have been sort of thing. And, and people might think, oh, well, what do you mean? You know, I'm, so many people over the years have had so many amazingly complimentary things to say about Dusk and Embrace. You know, but when you're on the inside of it, you could just see how not maybe that the finished album could have been better, but just, you know, and this is talking more widely, but, you know, what the band could have achieved. And you could maybe say that about, every band because all bands peak at some point and it's at, at, at best or hit and miss this is all your favorite bands so you me everybody listening to this all your favorite bands are hit and miss you know by definition bands can't keep getting better and better otherwise at some point they just become the best band in the universe and no band will ever do anything better ever again so yeah immensely proud of the album the, the recording process had a lot of highs it also had a lot of lows but at the end of it we were probably about as unified that particular lineup was probably about as unified as we ever were when the album was finished we were getting ready to tour because everybody was so stoked and so pumped by what we'd, we'd come out with and i will just throw in here of course and i've pointed this out i'm sure all cradle fans are well aware of this but um most of the material for dusk was already there by the time that the lineup for Vampire came together, which mm. was then completed with the addition of John for Dusk and Her Embrace. So we were working with songs, the, the structures of which, and you know, most of it was already there. Now, we did our own versions of those songs, and there is new material on the album that the, that the principal, the first album lineup did not work on. But we're, you know, I or anyone else who came into the band later, we're not trying to take credit for a lot of those songs but um if you i don't well if you can listen to um the original versions were later dusted down and overhauled 
as I'm sure you're aware, you know, the original Dusk and Embrace sessions, they were subsequently released. Now, they've been heavily modified to make them sound as good as possible. And I checked that album out. I had to. I was so curious. But I think as much as a hardcore fan would appreciate getting to hear that material, I think it highlights some of the areas that where we managed to improve upon it, if you see what I mean. And we, and we were improving upon uh, the bones of very, very good songs. Yeah, I agree. And there's a couple of points there I want to address because I've since gotten to know Paul and I've certainly underplayed his – well, okay, I've not understood his contribution, okay, but that has since changed. And he did write the majority of the music on Dusk, as Stuart wrote the majority of the music. Certainly he had Nick and um, your successor, Les, to help him out with Cruelty. But without Paul, the album doesn't get done. But what Stuart did, and I've had a, a mention, I've had a four-hour conversation with Stuart about this, but I, I, I distinctly remember I, was, I already had In the Nightside Eclipse and I had Blizzard Beasts, of course, by Emperor and Immortal. When I heard Stuart's guitar playing on dusk that was the first time i'd heard heard cradle and then of course i went back and got principal but the point is when i heard stewart's guitar playing it absolutely demystified black metal for me and of course your keyboard playing too the vastness of it all and the tones and the 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 the, the type of uh effects that you decided to use because i assume i'll ask you now i'll ask you in a second about that in terms of how you approach the songwriting on that on there um but before i go any further you mentioned something you said that when you were recording Dusk, that there were some lows. Can you tell me about some of them? Well, it, it was just it was it was all the usual stuff that I spotted within, because um, you know, I I was um, originally <clears throat> when I the I was uh, I put myself forward to join the band. Their road manager, sound engineer at the time, uh, they, they were a much smaller unit in terms of having a crew uh, he drove up north picked me up drove me down i had a meeting with the band it was then agreed that we'd uh we'd i'd come down again in a, in a couple of weeks i can't remember what the time period was but quite soon and i'd bring my equipment down we'd have a rehearsal so at that time when i eventually we got together i immediately spotted tensions i was kind of like oh, okay so you know these guys are like bickering like an old couple mm-hmm. even though there's more than two of them uh, not all the time and not with everybody, but you, you just noticed. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I've, I've been in bands before. I know what these how these things work. So when I mentioned that sort of dynamic happening during the recordings of Dusk, it was just, it was the usual stuff. It was people uh, disagreeing over what I saw as petty stuff, um, not perhaps handling differences of opinion in a very mature way. And, Sometimes I'll hear people say, ah, you know, but you were young. Listen, what age was I? I was older than any of the other guys at the time. But even then, I was like 25, 26. Mm. And the others were two, two, three years younger, various ages. You know, we're all adults, you know. Uh, In the time between then and now, young people, uh, you know, have become ever more infantilized to the point where you've got like, people 35 year old guys living in their parents basement you know just failure Absolutely. to failure to yeah. launch types you know but there's no reason why we couldn't have, <laughs> things couldn't have been conducted better you know what i mean so yeah it was it was a great experience um it, it, we all really enjoyed what was coming out of those big speakers in the studio 
Um, but yeah, there was just all this little low-level stuff that I just wish hadn't been there because I, I would I would love it to have been was just us like a gang, us yeah. against the world like a team. You know, I mean, I'm not expecting it all to be just a bed of roses. You know, there's a lot of pressure in the studio like that. We ended up spending. 10 weeks in the studio which was considerably longer than we had uh, booked originally and budgeted for the label went with it because they could hear what we were doing they knew it was going to be good but that was 10 weeks in the studio and while we were doing this, this is in birmingham um in ub40 studio and yes. we're living in this shitty hotel this shitty shitty hotel i can't tell you how bad this hotel was and so we're there all the time, you know, so there was, we're there all together all the time. And as much as I mentioned, you know, having a, being like a gang and enjoying our time together, we couldn't get away from each other yep. as well. Um, so I think that, yeah, that, that was a bit of a, um, a pressure pot and we were all under a lot of pressure to get this done as quickly as possible. Um, but I just wish that when things bubbled to the surface that we could either have had a bit of a timeout, one or more of us, um, or that we could have handled things a little bit better. But again, you, you then think of bands of whatever genre in, you know, at the twilight of their career, arguing like spoilt brats over royalties and who did what. And, you know, it's just, I used to think when I was a kid um, that I'd look at other kids in the playground fighting over stupid shit. And I'd think, oh, well, you know, adults, obviously when you're an adult, you don't behave like this because mm-hmm. adults know what's going on. They've got their they've got their shit sorted out, and then I realised when later on, when I was a teenager, I adults haven't necessarily got it sorted out at all. Pe- people basically are children from from cradle to grave. That is so true. I'm so glad you said that. I'm just forming that view. Kind of already known it, but I think it just just because I'm in my mid forties and I've been alive long enough to see that many people just don't improve. They're fucking morons from when they were thirteen to when they are now. Excuse my language, but you know what I'm saying. It's ridiculous. You mm. see that in politics, for example, and you see the way individuals react to politics. It's like they're following a rugby league side or something, where or a soccer team, I suppose, in your parlance, you know, where, or football team. Sorry, where where they, they pick a team early on and they just stick with it, come hell or high water. And they don't take on board any new data and adjust their behaviour. No, no, that's it. We 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 come and you could apply this to music taste as well. <laughs> we become very set in our ways very early on, and it, it's 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 when new information is presented, you know, it is okay to change your mind or to adjust. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep like a red line running all the way through your life of, in fact, it's good to, you know, of like uh, integrity and what's important to you, values, morals, anything that just, that guides you in life. But it's just this complete blinkered um, attitude of failing to take into you know account anything that's changing around you. And of course, right. that's why a lot of us are struggling, struggling at the minute is because we're living in a, a world that's changing at increasingly rapid pace. And, and people are obviously struggling massively to cope with it. So, you know. Hmm. Hey, I, I, I do want to talk to you about legalized freedom because I've listened to many episodes and, I, and I'm extremely impressed, I've got to say. Your work reminds me of uh, Lex Friedman a little bit, who I think is doing magnificent work. But I'll, I'll get to that a bit later on. I just want to stick with the cradle thing for now because the uh, the one question that I, I haven't asked anybody that was a member of the, the, uh, the Dusk lineup but I get the opportunity to talk to now, talk about now, is Kit Wolven. Now, I touched on it with Stuart, but he's magnificent. And 
I, to your point earlier about, and I've always said this, and it's absolutely no disrespect to Paul at all, but they're like night and day, those two recordings, meaning the, I just call it the, the Paul version and the Stuart version. That's in my parlance. That's what I've decided to call them for the conversations that I'm doing. Oh, I could call it the, the Greg version too, if you like, because of course you recorded on it, but they, they are night and day and they almost sound like different recordings. Now, what, how, working with Kit, you're working with, with one of the best in the business as far as me as a fan can see, but was that your take? And, and can you tell me about how you worked with him on, gain, on on the keyboard sound? Because I had a shitty little car back in the day, man, but your keyboards on that album on the CD just, just soared. They were beautiful. Well, oh, thank you. I... I um... It was easy working with Kit. I'll just throw in a little nugget of information here. Uh, people can maybe go back. I, mean, I can't remember what it says on the Dusk credits now, but the, the the engineer at the time working with Kit was Dan Sprigg. And mm-hmm. although Kit, Kit recorded a lot of keyboards with me, um, in the basement they had a second studio. And especially when we were under more and more time pressure, um, I did go downstairs with Dan, just he and I, and work on textures and sound effects and stuff because they had that, you know, that second studio down there. And so while the guys would work upstairs on the guitars in the big room. So I just want to give some credit there, you know, that we were doing mm-hmm. several things at once. Um, <clears throat> working with Kit was super easy, I found. Um, he, was a, he was a cliched, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, old school producer, you know. The, you know the the generation that he was his background and stuff you know having worked with um thin lizzie and ufo and mm-hmm. and whatnot people people can look up his credits now my re- recollection is that he of course was married to the band's manager at the time correct yeah. uh fay wolf fay wolf and i think she still looks after the band i know she does um so there may have been well there may have been you know, put two and two together <clears throat> uh, and into how he might have come into the situation. But anyway, his name was put forward. I don't remember being invited to comment on it, but anyway, it was Kate. You're going to be working with this guy. Here's his credits. And um, yeah, I mean, he was a consummate professional, um, always had a can of um, Stella Artois lager on the desk as he worked. <laughs> 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 just, to keep, just keep things flowing. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> And he was a he was a cultured guy as well. No, the interesting thing was having him there kind of threw up a little bit of um, the differences between how members of the band work together and work with other people, because um, Danny and I got on very well with Kit. We could talk about similar things, and I feel that that Nick, for example, didn't him and Kit didn't really have much in common. So, um, you know, there wasn't the same kind of born homie, if, if you want to put it that way mm-hmm. there. And also bear in mind that Nick did not have to re-record the drums. So the drums that you hear on the 96 version are the same drums that he recorded for the original one. Yep. All that, that Kit did in the studio was basically take the raw material, raw recordings, and make them sound massive. So the decision was taken to save money, not to re-record the drums. The reason I mention this is because Nick did not have to work one-on-one with Kit, um, recording a whole album's worth of very complex, very fast 
drums. If he had, they may have built up more of a working relationship. So a lot of the time when Nick was there, he was kind of at the back of the control room or um, hanging around, um, offering his opinion, whatever. Um, but he was at a bit of a loose end some of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Dan Sprigg, sorry, is that the name of the engineer that you mentioned? I should yes. know this, but yes, uh, Dan, okay. Dan, yeah. Dan Sprigg, yeah, you can you can look him up. He's since gone on to be a very successful producer in his own right. Uh-huh. Okay, there you go. Would, would you say that the sound that was captured was – was more to do with your relationship or your working a relationship with him as opposed to Kit? Or was it was it more that you did what you had to do with Dan and then Kit just came in and just tweaked a few things and there you go? No, the first keyboards I remember recording were in the, the main control room with Kit, but Dan was there as well. <clears throat> he was engineer, that was the whole point. Because the studio was massive and there was, you know, there was lots of things to do. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's more than enough for two guys at the, the desk to be, you know, twiddling knobs and adjusting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was when we started to come under more time pressure that the decision was made. Okay, well, why don't you? You've got this. You know, you're working on this keyboard instrumental, or you need to do this these graveyard sound effects. We're all gonna we're going to carry on with guitars and vocals. You and Dan head off and do this. So that that was just the practical thing, I think, at some point in order to try and expedite the process because as i say although we spent 10 weeks uh mm-hmm. we still only just got finished in time i remember at the end of the process the um the studio um giving everybody in the band and the our crew and every involved um, a bottle of really good champagne mm-hmm. and i remember thinking well that's nice but I'd rather have had a discount off the cost of the studio because they're giving us champagne because they're going, I can't believe these guys have been here for like two and a half months at the rates we're charging, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. What was your, what were your recollections about working? Can you, could you call it that working with or working for the label music for nations? Cause I know, I know all about what happened with uh, Cocophonous records there. And of course that is part of the reason why uh, Dusk was re-recorded, but did they get involved at all or did they just advance you guys the money and say, make the album of your lives guys? No, Music for Nations at that time um, were a label that we wanted to be signed to because they had either um, signed or licensed so many of the albums uh, during the eighties that were important to all of us. You know, releasing all the Metallica albums in the yeah. UK and so many other, mainly thrash metal bands, but other um, subgenres as well. So they were a label that we had in mind, and we and we, we wanted to sign with the British label if possible. Um, when we were looking for a new deal, uh, once we're, I mean, I, I never actually signed with Cacophonous, um personally, um, but when the band collectively was looking for a new deal, when we're trying to like. Uh, get out of that situation. Music for Nations were top of the list for the reason I just mentioned and others. Uh, there were other. We went across and had negotiations with negotiations with Nuclear Blast, for example, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> they were a great label. Um, they treated us very well. They made a really good offer, and it was very tempting. Uh, but we actually sort of haggled with Music for Nations and more or less said, you know, look you know, you want us, you want us. And by the way, we want you. So it's kind of a bit of a mutual thing going on, you know, like sort of giving them something if they give us something. 
Um, so to directly answer your question, it was it was a good relationship. Um, they they did what we wanted the, a label to do, which was put the proper resources in to make the product that we had in mind. So you know, with artwork, you know, they spent money on the the photographers, the two different photographers whose work went together to make the front sleeve, the packaging, uh, special editions, and not le- not least of which was this ten week recording. They invested the money; they knew it was going to be good. And I remember having many meetings with um, Music for Nations at their offices, which at the time were at Latimer Road in London. And um, yeah, yeah, they treated us well. So we were pleased to be with the label and they looked like they were pleased to sign us. So it was a good situation. And obviously the band continued with Music for Nations sometime after that. And I can't comment uh, there, but I think overall it would be regarded as as fruitful. In fact, the poster you mentioned at the start, mm. um, a, lo- a lot of labels were going, oh, I don't know, it's going to cost too much, you know. But they, they knew it was like, no, if we're going to do this, do it right you know don't do some kind of halfway house and i think it it, yeah. uh, it paid off magnificently so i must say and uh look we've got to touch on this topic uh because of the response that uh, that i get to the episode with stewart because i think of course as i mentioned dusk is a seminal album in its own right and uh it's easily one of my most listened to albums ever i must have listened to it if not a thousand times it'll be approaching that but I, I long felt, and I say this with the greatest of respect, that, that cruelty seemed to take it up a notch. I know it wasn't recorded to the musicians in the band at the time, liking. But I've had I've had a long and in-depth conversation uh, with Stuart and Nick about this. But I know you, that he recorded all of the guitars, of course. John wasn't. He was a member of, he, uh, in, uh, he was just a named member, but he didn't actually do anything in the studio. Certainly that's been confirmed by Nick and by Stuart. So Stuart on which of, album? Uh, Dusk, that is. Uh, Dusk and the majority, I think, too, of Cruelty as well, I must say. Uh, yeah, well, John John was certainly there during the recording because um, we, uh, when he first came down to join the band, it, he came to Birmingham because I remember we went to New Street Station to meet him. Hmm. Um, so, so he was certainly there. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of by the by. Yeah. But what were your impressions of Stuart? Um. <clears throat> okay, so I would say he was someone I didn't have much in common with. Not, we would never have hung out um, if we were not in a band together and we didn't hang out much when we were in the band. I didn't not get on with him, but, you know, he was just not someone high. He was like a stoner. That was his background. When he when he first came to audition for the band, mm-hmm. I remember, uh, um, and there's no disrespect to the guy. It's just everybody's got their own look, but... I remember For Danny sure. sort of just saying, he looks like a tramp <laughs> or words to that effect. So he came in a, a, a big overcoat, you know, and his hair was in a state and, you know, he was, was like smoking a joint or smoking a cigarette. He didn't look like the guy who was going to be in the band. Now, of course, he, he then, as everyone was required to, um, most people, most band members wanted to, but then you, you overhaul your image you know, you do your version of what you think, you know, okay, I'm in this band now. We're very image conscious. We've got to do mm. something about that. So, but that's not really, I mean, to answer your question again, I got on very well with, with John. He was very garrulous. He was just nonstop energy, a lot of fun. It could be a bit over the top at times, you know, so after a while it'd be like, okay, John, I'm going to go home now. Um, <laughs> but, 
you know, we've all got one of those mates. And, those and, mates, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, again, the, the simplest way to put it is that I guess that if I hadn't been in the band with Stuart, I doubt our paths would ever ever have crossed. Uh, whereas I was already aware of John um, because of Solstice, um, you know, uh, okay. New Dark yeah. Age. Yeah. Um, so I I became aware of that when I was in Cradle and. Um, Danny at the time lived in a village in Suffolk called Hadley. Um, So I'd go and visit him at home sometimes. And also in Hadley at the time was Misanthropy Records um, Mm -hmm. run by uh, Tiziana Stupia. And, you know, we we all know the great history of that label. Um, But so Solstice New Dark Age came to my attention at that time and the other guys in Cradle were fans of that album as well. So that might have been something to do with, with getting John on the band. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, so I was already aware of him and his work, if you see what I mean. So w- when he came down to to try out for the band, it was kind of, oh, yeah, it's the guy from Solstice. Okay. There you go. That's uh, – how can I put that? That's interesting to hear because your musical partnership is very fruitful. Yours and Stuart's I'm talking about. You, you, you blend on record is what I'm saying, and that doesn't always happen. Listen to some of those Megadeth records and the like, or some of those musicians who are top guns in their field. But, uh, you know, Dim, Jimmy DeGrasso, for example, with Dave Mustaine, never truly gelled for me as a, as a listener, I, going from Nick and then God knows whoever else Dave's had in the band afterwards. But uh, you guys, you, you might have been chalk and cheese, and that's my interpretation of what you're saying, but you certainly had a fruitful musical partnership. Well, that was probably... Um, made possible because I don't know you can hear what we might have done on if, I, if I'd played on Cruelty, of the, Cruelty and the Beast if you go back to the Vampire mm-hmm. because there, there was new material on Vampire um, which we cooked up and Stuart was the only guitarist at the time despite what the finished record you know yes. would lead yeah. you to believe there was only and I played the keys. Everything was much more basic in a much smaller studio. So where I'm going with this is that on Duskener Embrace, we were working mostly with material that was already there. Although I was able to rework keyboards to my own. I I followed what Ben Ryan had done up to a point, like, okay, but in some of it was like, we couldn't do anything else, but I expanded upon it a great deal. So, and Stuart was playing a lot of guitar parts that were already laid down, already written. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what our quote-unquote working relationship might have been like if I'd stayed in the band for the writing of Cruelty. Mm. And I like to think it would have been fine because, I mean, we didn't argue or anything like that, you know. But equally, um, I didn't – I used to go around to to Robin's, like, flat all the time just to hang out. But we would write and, and you know, record loads and loads of little cassettes of ideas. I never, ever did that with Stuart even once. Um, I can't imagine doing that. If, so if we'd been writing, it would have been in the rehearsal studio. So mm-hmm. who knows what that would have been like if we hadn't had the scaffolding of Duskener and Brace that was already in place. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's a great explanation too, by the way. It answers... Uh, I get hit up a lot about the episode with Stuart and uh, I certainly recently wasn't the first time I've been, I've been asked to bring you onto the show, but it certainly answers some of the... Uh, it it, it uh, satisfies my curiosity, if you like, about the working relationship or otherwise. But I need to ask, talking to Nick, he called John Blackie Useless and said Rob couldn't tie his shoelaces. 
tough but fair, do you think? <clears throat> I know why he said that, and I've heard Blackie Useless before. Um, Rob not being able to tie his own shoelaces, um, I think is a bit unfair. But again, I know why he might say that. Um, Rob is very quiet, but he wrote a hell of a lot that was never really, um, how shall I put it, properly entertained, in properly considered, because he wasn't a very, um, he wouldn't push himself forward with the stuff. Mm. You know, he'd have he'd have all these mountains of material, which he'd play to me, in his flat. And I, oh, this is great. This is great. He says, oh, yeah, you know, but I'm not sure. And I said, oh, you know, put it forward, put it forward. And then it'd be like, oh, yeah, have you got anything, Rob, in the rehearsal studio? Nick, I'd say, sitting behind the kit. Have you got anything, Rob? Yeah, I got this, you know, and be like, yeah, OK. Anyone else got anything? You know what I mean? And I'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. why don't we consider this? I remember an example is like one riff in particular that Rob played and I put keyboards on. I thought, we've got a single here. This is the next the forest whispers my name, you know, not the, mm -hmm. the banded singles, but I, th I thought perhaps we should have considered it. Yeah. And uh, so Rob and I did a little, he had a little drum machine. So we did a little demo of it, a little instrumental demo, played it. Um, we were, I think we were around at Stuart's flat actually in Hadley at the time. And, and Stuart said, uh, sounds too much like Satyricon. And that was the end of it. You know, that was it. Gone. Okay. You know, <laughs> Yes, and after all this conversation, the one person that we haven't talked a lot about is Danny. So I've got a bit of a monologue here, so bear with me as I go through it. But uh, in addition to the members that I've already spoken to, I've spoken to, I have spoken to Dan, Lindsay Schoolcraft, Richard Shaw, who's currently in the band, um, and I've hit Sarah up on Instagram as well. So there are 26 band members, I believe, certainly what, what I can find, that are credited as actual members in album booklets that have left the band. Overall, there have been 40 band members that have been both studio contributors and live members. And that's spread across vocals, bass, guitar, drums, and of course, keyboards. And there's a bunch of other, you know, Kronos from Venom did some spoken word stuff, but I'm not including them. Now, if you were running a business, and if a band member is akin to having a seat on the board, Shareholders have probably questioned the validity of the business given the cycling here. So I know we're talking about music and it's vastly different to running a traditional business like a retail outlet or a swimming pool cleaning business or what have you, because there are extended tours and also with musicians, because I'm one too, so I get it. God knows I've been in enough bands and none of them have worked out. So <laughs> I can write my own book about some of these things too, but uh, quite possibly a lot of sensitive personalities as well. But uh, look, you are, you were one in the band. You are one of the 26 credited actual members. So you do have, and you've given me some great insight on the band's dynamic uh, overall so far. So I, I truly appreciate that. But do you have a clue as to why Cradle cycles three members about as often as I have cases of beer over the years? Because there is, uh, I mean, I've got to come out with it. It just seems like Danny runs the band as a Napoleon character and people just sort of come in and out. Well, I think that's the bottom line. I don't think that's that Danny, I can't imagine from the time I did spend with him and talk with him, that's ever how he'd have wanted it to be. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think he's, certainly in the early days, I think the original Cradle, you know, I know there was 
various people before the the lineup that you hear on principle of evil made flesh isn't the first lineup but <clears throat> when the band first came together i think they were just like every other group of teenagers um fired up with metal wanting to do their own thing so i don't think that was ever danny's vision or intention uh and i think that whatever happened with the band when they split in half you know after principle came out mm-hmm. i think that that was a big that was a big blow and i think that the the, the guys who left you know when, when paul allender and the ryans left they basically well one or more of them the attitude maybe from the ryans more than anything else the attitude was like fuck you danny you haven't got a band anymore and danny's always been focused and determined he's a very forceful character and it was clear when i spoke with him when my name was you know in the frame for joining the band that he was determined to put cradle of filth back together as quickly as possible and do something better than they'd already done because he knew the band had some momentum already in the underground so and then so vampire came together but it wasn't all there yet and then dust came together and i think at that point especially given that the band started went professional at that point when dusk was released that's when people stopped having day jobs because you could do that back then hey kids you know between the time when dusk was released and christmas we sold a hundred thousand about a hundred thousand albums you know Mm -hmm. in a few months physical copies plus all the merchandise and the, the the bands always sold about well when i was in the ratio of merchandise to album sales was about 10 to 1 so for every album we'd sell we'd sell 10 merch items mm-hmm. um so it, it was pretty lucrative at, but it was still you know mid-range but so anyway we went professional at that point and that was seen as kind of right okay we're on our way now so i can only guess that uh the the band was always danny's vision but you know he wanted he he, did, he doesn't write music so he always needed yes. people around him as, as, as most like band leaders and people who like Dave Mustaine, you gave the example, people who have a vision, they need the right people around them. And I suppose as time went on, um, I'm guessing you'd have to ask Danny this, but he wanted to keep his band going, his vision going. And I think he wanted a band. I really think he wanted a unified band, not hired hands or anything like that. But I do remember well, when I was in the band, and I know this could be a sensitive subject, but um, I've never signed any, you know, clauses to say that I can't speak about this. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here. Um, it was. It, let's just put it this way, without putting too fine a point on it. When I was in the band, it was an equal split. At some point after that, maybe quite a while after that, but at some point after that, that changed and that inevitably changes the dynamic. It becomes not six equal partners. It becomes boss and employees or whatever, however you want to put it. And that's bound to change things um, in ways that are, if not imperceptible, then maybe beyond just pure music. You know, then you're starting to think about, you know, finances and everything else. And how many bands can we think of that have hit roadblocks or fallen apart, you know, for financial reasons. It's kind of sad, but you know, that money makes the world go round. It can also make it stop. My suspicion is you're absolutely on point, and and I think that's potentially. Gosh, I'm kind of limited as to what I can say because of the insight I've been given. Okay, but I'm simply going to say my suspicion is you're absolutely on point, 
And uh, I don't even think the band has a keyboard player at the moment. Uh, I think Marek or Martin, as he goes by the English version of Marek, I think he does the keyboards at this point in time. I think they just put them through the PA or whatever when they're playing, which is... Uh, Look, I could be wrong about that at the moment, but certainly when I look at Wikipedia, it's not listing. And also the band, most recent band photos, I'm pretty sure there's not, not a, I think there's only five members instead of six, am I right saying that, at the moment. So people have to feel included and involved. Stuart mentioned that to me, that he he made sure that, or worse the effect, I'm paraphrasing him here, that he made sure, even though John didn't do the writing on Cruelty or didn't play on Dusk, he, he made sure that he was included as a member in the way you've just described and certainly given given credit on the albums. So once that shifts, and God knows I've been enough fans, as I've mentioned already myself, once that shifts and you're seeing power centralise in one place, particularly in, in a black metal band where the chances of success were slim to none to begin with, but when you get to the top of the pile, like what Cradle of Filth managed, I can, and I'm not defending Danny here, and one day I will talk to him about these things if he ever wants to talk to me, but I can understand how you can develop a Napoleon complex and think you're always right and that you're in charge and your boss. I can understand how, how that happens. The, the issue, though, is that, and again, I'm, I'm bound by, um, it's not confidentiality. People have shared things with me that they've asked me not to share, but I know some of the behind-the-scenes things that went on in the band, and, and, and it's not good. It's not good at all. And and I, I worry about oh, fuck. I worry about the mental health of some people that have been in the band as a human being, um, because I'm a parent myself, and that's where I get a bit concerned. See, I, I'm a fan, obviously, and I've, I'm only looking at the outside in. But as a journalist, I start asking questions, and the more I dig, to be honest with you, with this band, it just keeps on going fucking deeper. <laughs> and and I, and I begin to think. Be, Joining this band could potentially be, um, it could be damaging to your health in some ways. Now, I, I, I'm that's my opinion. Okay, so I'm entitled to say that as a fan. I, I have no, I'm not saying I'm basing that on any data whatsoever. That's my interpretation and my perception of what I see with this band here. But to go through that many band members, as I said, 40 tenured band members live or in the studio, 26 that have been credited of a band that's been in the spotlight as long as what Cradle has been. No other band has been through that many band members that I'm aware of, okay? You look at, at bands like Satyricon have always been, you mentioned them, okay, so that's always been Frost and Sartre's thing and they're just bringing people around them. I'm, I, I've spoken to Sato and it, to me, he just seems like a very cultured and like he's like, he's like you, man. He reminds me of you a bit. He's a renaissance man. He's just a guy who likes fine living and, and, and culture. And so when I spoke to him, I, I got the impression that you, you knew what you were going to get when you worked with him and Frost. If you were if you sign up to go on a tour or whatever, you're just in the band for the tour, put on the face paint or the corpse paint, I should say, and get up on stage, do your thing and, and sort of go. But because Sigurd, as his name is, because Sata writes the music in that band and Danny doesn't write the music in Cradle Filth, and that's the key distinction right there, my perception is that musicians are being used to further his career. What do you think about that as a comment? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to say that even if that's not the intention, then that's how, that's the reality. 
you know, he might not express it like that further his career, but that's what it actually is because um, without, you know, he could do have a career doing something else, you know, TV personality or something, DJ, mm. I don't know. But if the front man with Cradle of Filth and he needs musicians and he needs music, so yeah, just by default, of course, you know, he doesn't have a um, a career without that. And, and you, you can get, you can bring in hired hands or call them band members if you want, and they can play your back catalog. Some of them may play your back catalog better than the guys who wrote or recorded it. But when it comes down to writing, and this is one of the things that I'm sure all of us can think of with, you know, the, the bands that we've been fans of long-term when, when mm. new people come in and the writing changes, you know, that can be uh, sometimes for the better, quite often not really, I'd say most times not. And that's not to take, that doesn't mean that the, the, the new writing or the slightly new revised version of a band won't find fans elsewhere that someone else won't think this new version of the band is the best. No doubt there are, I mean, I've spoken to, uh, to cradle fans, um, I remember doing speaking to a few of them at Bloodstock here in the UK in 2019 when Cradle played, mm-hmm. and they were kind of like, "Oh yeah, you know, we do, we don't. This is like, you know, there are some songs up there, you know, from like the early 90s. We don't really know. We're gonna have to check out that early Cradle stuff." And they're stood there in front of me with that Cradle shirt on, and like, you know, <laughs> their attempt at, at corpse paint. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm old enough. I'm old enough to be their father, sort of thing. And you're saying, oh, "Okay, yes. yeah, you really should check that stuff out." But yeah, so that that's. Uh, to further his career yes by d- definition by default and that's bound to alter the music you know because if you then say and this is so many bands have gone wrong here oh uh so okay this is the new lineup of the band can you listen to these albums that were really successful and do something like that hmm. you know that's a that's a mission to nowhere isn't it really yeah it's it's just so strange with that band because with Danny only coming in to help out with the arrangements, because I've spoken to so many members, I can triangulate, I think, what actually occurs because I've got all this data. So the musicians write the music, they invite Danny in. Certainly Richard Shaw gave me a great insight as to how the how the band's music is written. He actually told me that he hadn't, he'd been in the band, whatever the time period was, it was a rather short period of time he was writing a Cradle album and he had to actually talk to his brother, who was a massive Cradle fan, about what Cradle of Filth fans, fans might want to hear. To give you an idea, that's the dynamic that existed in the band. And, and I've got to say, both he and Lindsay were, sounded like lovely people, but they were nowhere near as candid about the things that you're talking about or Stuart or any of the other members that have left the band. So Lindsay, since she's left, I'd love to talk to her and, and, and compare the two conversations because she she described Danny as... Uh, Broader, there's, a, there's a broader quote, but in the quote, the boss man. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because he's not writing the music. He might have the relationships with the management. But what that then suggested to me, and and this is the core issue, I think, in the band at the moment, and probably underlines some of the other stuff that we've been talking about, is that Danny's the only tenured member and everybody else, a bit like what happens in Megadeth at the moment, they're just on the payroll. You're just in the band for that period of time, a bit like what I imagine goes on in Kiss. So that's not not necessarily, like I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Like there's obviously utility in that because the band can keep on going. But fans don't know these things and they don't understand that 
people are adults and they're trying to pay mortgages and rents and potentially if they've got children they've got to put kids through school you've got to put food on the table is what i'm saying so so individuals can quite often without realizing it and i'm definitely not saying danny does this but you can enter into a situation with great intention and your perception seems to be the perception could be with a lot of these band members after a period of time they've been taken advantage of and then they just pop out the other side of it and then they're they're upset and and the other thing is not a lot of band members pop up in other bands afterwards so out of the 26 tenured members uh, how many have gone on to be in, have, have done what Dave Mustaine did? Let's just use him, for example. These are the guys and girls that are writing the music. So that's that's interesting. I don't think I'll ever get an answer to that. Maybe they just don't want to do it anymore. Maybe they're burnt out. Maybe it's just been such a bad taste that's been in their mouth that they say, this, this music industry stuff is just shit. And I've got to tell you, I know I couldn't do it either. Speaking after, you know, almost well over 600 interviews at this point, I don't think I could tour the world and smell other people's farts for as long as what people need to on those bloody awful tour buses across the Midwest of the USA and sitting around. I mean, most musicians, to underline a point, are professional travellers. You spend about an hour and a half to two hours on stage unless you're Paul McCartney, then it's four hours. <laughs> I suffered through one of his concerts once. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, sorry, I've, I've gone in a few different directions there. But uh, I thought you were a good person to bring a lot of this stuff up with because it had been a long time since you'd been in a band and you, you've, you've, you've been successful in your own right since, but doing other things. So, but I will underline all of that with a question, which is based on a point that I raised there, which is that I, I don't think I saw your name and it might've been the case. So please correct me if I'm wrong in other bands since you left Cradle, but why didn't you decide to uh, extend your career in the music business with another band or start your own after you left? Um, I just didn't want to. Um, bear in mind that I didn't have a band together when I joined Cradle. Um, uh, it wasn't long after I left university that the opportunity to join the band came up. And I was, so I was living in England at the time. That's where I went to university. And I had um, done a music technology master's degree and mm-hmm. wanted to get into that area um but found myself after a few months at a bit of a loose end but i was thinking oh well you know just we'll keep going uh but i said to myself i might move back to ireland by the this is 1995 i might move mm-hmm. back to ireland by the end of the year if nothing comes up here now in hindsight that would have been a pointless move but that's what i was thinking i remember just sitting um uh in the center of town on a, a water fountain one day it was the middle of the summer a nice day just contemplating life the universe and everything so i thought this is what i might do and uh so yeah i wasn't in the band and then i went and bought for something to read i went to the news agents and bought a copy of metal hammer and went back to the fountain and sat down to read that and it was in there that i noticed this advertisement I went to the classifieds at the back and it said name British black metal band require keyboard player. And there was just a, an, a, you know, an address or a PO box to apply. Mm-hmm. And it was so un- unusual for at that time. Um, I was aware of the, you know, the, the early Scandinavian black metal bands, some of which had keys. And it was just unusual at the time. Keyboards and metal wasn't really so much of a thing. And I'd been playing keyboards for a few years and uh, not, you know, bringing that together with metal, not at all. I, I was interested in, the electronic music, particularly of the 70s, like Tangerine Dream and Klaus Schultz. I've been doing that sort of style. Mm-hmm. But I thought, what the hell, I'll, I'll go for it. So 
and that it, lo and behold it worked out the point being i didn't have a band at that time i wasn't trying to form a band i wasn't thinking like that at all I was just making music on my own so when the cradle thing came to an end one thing i'd been doing prior i started doing this at the end of the 80s but i'd, I'd got my first few writing gigs paying jobs uh writing features for magazines and doing reviews of albums so the first thing I did when the cradle when the cradle thing ended was pick that back up again. Um, I called Nick Terry, who was the editor at that time. This is '97 now when I left the band um, of the British metal magazine called Terrorizer. Brilliant and, magazine. Uh, cradle, and I've read your work in that, by the way. You're a great writer, by the yeah. way. I just sort of want to put. That oh, in. thank you very much. Well, it, yeah, it, it was in its day, um, and Cradle had a particularly good relationship with Terrorizer. You know, symbiotic. Like we gave them exclusives, and they put us on the cover. Um, so that was good. And I called him up and literally just said, "Look, you know, have you got any work?" And he said, "As it happens, we do." So. That, that, to answer your question, I didn't have any urge to particularly get back into a band or anything like that. It did cross my mind because I thought, okay, there was a, that was an exciting time. There was a lot to like about that. But the way I look at it is is because is, um, I played guitar as well. It was the first thing I ever played. I had bands, you know, at uh, school, um, you know, we used to play at a school disco, that type of thing, and a few pubs and whatnot. Um, but it, as much as that music was the central thing in my life being in a band being up on a stage was never the most important thing that's not really what it was about for whatever reason some some guys just want to be in bands whatever happens you know yeah. they'll play i don't you know they'll play it they'll play in bands that are not maybe even their 100 their thing because they just want to be in a band they want to be rehearsing they want to be a, on stage that's what they get a buzz out of so and i felt quite relieved to be honest it was a real weight off my shoulders and a weight off my mind um i remember clearly when because the guys came around to my my flat in Ipswich um, to break the news to me. And when they all left, um, I remember just sitting, it was the afternoon. I just sat down on the, on the sofa and I was just like, ah, okay, right. And I, I felt, I actually felt good. Not like as in punching the air, you know, because it was, it wasn't, it was out of the blue, you know, was not expecting it. But part of me was like, Thank God for that, you know, and that's not to take anything away from the experience at all. I wouldn't change a thing, really, you know, because you can't anyway. But it was a wild ride. I loved every minute of it, apart from the bits I didn't. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so uh, forming another band never really crossed my mind. Um, I had a couple of approaches. Like, uh, I remember getting an email from November's Doom over in the US and, oh, yeah. oh you know, would you be interested? Would you be interested in playing key sort of thing? And. Um, I, I spoke with the guys in My Dying Bride um, around when they were putting the band back together around 99 and mm-hmm. looking at uh, starting to play live shows again, you know, could, you know, would I be interested in that? And that was a band whose music I, I, I adore and that probably would have suited my personality a lot more, you know, but nothing came of that. So there were just little bits and pieces and, but, but, uh, but no, I was, I was happy not to, to be honest. Yeah, I can see you would have fitted in with the guys in, in Paradise Lost. I've had a couple of conversations uh, with those my dying guys. Bride. Yeah, sorry, my dying bride. Sorry, uh, both bands. I've got to say, and they both have impressed me immensely. Um, they both. Yeah. No, uh, I love Paradise Lost as well. Paradise Lost are one of my favourite bands of all time. You know, so. Yeah. Oh, but but my dying bride. Um, I just uh, just felt like uh, just the conversation that I certainly had with the lads. Uh, Talking to you now, I can see now you would have fitted into that band a lot better. 
uh, even after my conversations with the Cradle guys because they were more, how can I put it, um, they, they, it felt like as though the band was far more laid back. Those two bands are far more laid back than what was going on in Cradle. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally um, worlds apart. I mean, the, they've all got sh- shared history, you know, with Academy Studios and recording. And, like, one thing I clearly remember when we were recording Vampire, and of course, Academy was also where Cradle recorded the, the first album. Mm. But being being in there with Keith Appleton, uh, the studio owner, and, and Mags, the producer, and just thinking, oh, you know, Paradise Lost did Gothic in here, and and realizing that the big instrumental break in the middle of Gothic, you know, Keith, that was all his work, sort of thing. And and mm-hmm. so it was a real, you know, point being that everybody in cradle really liked paradise lost even though there weren't that many years between them you know when you're younger one or two years feels like longer if you see what i mean so paradise Paradise (laughs) lost we measure things in decades now (laughs) yeah exactly but so paradise lost felt like this established band um at that time which they were you know i mean sort of you know uh, where would they have been up to then i suppose icon would have been out by that point uh yeah because when in fact, they would have been working on – where are we now? Yeah, so Draconian Times would have oh, been nice. in the works while we were recording Vampire, you know. So, yeah, and that, that was Paradise Lost Big Break, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'll just talk about My Dying Bride for a sec. I remember I, I said to Andrew because he always reminded me of the uh, – I call him the pedestrian Adrian Smith, and I think he, he laughed for about 10 or 15 seconds when I said that to him because he's so – you know, that slow sustain that he uses – backed by the mm. keyboards in the band there and uh and just with the um the way the vocal just soars over the top as well it's just it's just magnificent what that band has uh, been able to achieve i think with aaron's vocal uh as well but uh yeah man there, i can definitely see you sort of having a career in those bands if that's what you decided to do so it's just a case that you, you said no i've done that i'm going to move on to other things and I, I mentioned your writing in terrorizer i certainly don't remember you as a writer in terrorizer at the time but that's because, you know, I was young and you read these things and you move on to the next article and you're not paying attention to who's writing it. But I've, I've found your article since and they've, they're well written. Uh, you, because you've been in a band, I think this is the key thing. You can relate to the people that you're doing the reviews for and sometimes interviewing. So so there were two magazines that I listened to, or that I read. I've got to say Metal Maniacs was my number one by far, the American magazine. We used to get that here about mm-hmm. three months after it was released in the States. Such was, uh, this is well before the days of the internet I'm talking about. But uh, I used to cycle between Terrorizer and Metal Maniacs. And I found that's all I needed back then. Because I, I, I think I just missed out on the fanzine craze. There wasn't a whole bunch around, certainly in Australia, like there were there. But um, look, I'll, I'll ask you, you one more question about Cradle and then I'll do a time check. Okay, so uh, I have heard nothing and I've never asked a question about Sarah, Sarah Jezebel Diva, I think is her pseudonym or stage name. Was she a crucial contributor on Dusk? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I think so. Yeah, I mean, she, the vocals that she does, I think, are very important to the um, to the texture and the color of the album. And of course, she came out on tour with us and did that live, you know, because she was she was had been a performer herself, you know, on stage and studio. So she could do that. If she hadn't been around, no doubt somebody would have been recruited. You know, some session person would have been wheeled in to do it. But she was a character in her own right. She liked 
extreme metal. She did extreme metal um, projects of her own during and after uh, Cradle. So, as I say, I don't think you could necessarily say pivotal, um, but she was part of, um, she was kind of like, we thought of her as part of the lineup, certainly when we were on tour. Um, that's the way we tried to treat her. Well, I did anyway. And the fans certainly looked, they knew that she wasn't, you know, writing music and she wasn't, um, what she, she wasn't like a seventh member. You know, there were six people in the photographs, put it that way. Mm. Um, but yeah, she, she definitely had something to contribute. She wasn't just a voice, if you see what I mean. So, I and she was yeah. like, a she was like an impressive kind of Amazonian type, you know, f- you know, physical presence. She wasn't some sort of like <laughs> little waif that would disappear. So, so yeah, when, when it worked in the band, having her there, I think it was good. I think it was really good to have her on stage, particularly uh, as a presence and a voice and to be able to recreate a little bit more um, of the album as it actually sounded. Um, but of course she, got as we all did you know ended up getting on better with some people rather than others and you know she wasn't um immune to to arguments and disputes and and you know bad tempered outbursts and whatnot so um mm. but yeah yeah i think she was an important uh, part of that period for sure yeah i've hit her up i think i might have mentioned it earlier i've hit her up on instagram but uh a bit like Liz, so I don't think she checks her, um, her her direct messages. So that's okay. One day I'll get to them. And Robin too. Robin's the other member that I'd love to talk to, but it just seems to have disappeared off from a social media perspective and contact perspective off the planet altogether. But uh, I might ask you later after everything's done if uh, if he's still and still in touch with him and you're happy with the work that we've done here. I'd love to have a chat to him. That is the end of any conversation relating to music. And Cradle of Filth. Okay, so from here on, Greg and I talk about current affairs, social issues, and politics, inspired by his podcast series, Legalize Freedom. Here we go. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. I appreciate it. I'm uh, a naturally curious person. So when I uh, stumble across what you've been doing, which is about as far from black metal as you can possibly get, with legalized freedom it fills me with a bit of hope i've got to say <laughs> it stays because uh god knows i don't know whether it's always been like this or whether we've just sort of been alerted to the fact that we are still fairly tribal there are people out there like yourself who are trying to shed light where there is darkness and that's what i like about what you've been doing well i appreciate that thank you yeah because it's um i mentioned that the work that you're doing reminds me of what Lex is doing in that you invite a subject matter expert onto the show and you discuss esoteric concepts. And often you're trying to get to the bottom of and you're demystifying deliberately opaque topics such as this bloody awful Great Reset bullshit that's been going on at the moment. The, uh, the, the catastrophe of our times outside of COVID, which is the 2008 financial crisis and the psychotic tendency of many non-government organizations and you, you said a, a word which i studied at uni actually well you mentioned a topic which i studied at uni i should say which is the technocracy but you also cover age-old topics such as ufos quantum physics uh, things like how thoughts become reality the meaning of life and, and so much more 
So what I said earlier, I meant you are a renaissance man because you are curious. You're a bit like me and like that. But um, listening to you speak, though, you care deeply. Listening to your podcasts uh, and your um, your YouTube uh, clips, you care deeply about the fate of humanity. So after all of that, my, here's my question. With the rise of totalitarianism as a left-wing virtue squad weaponizing compassion and the res- and and this resegregation that we're experiencing of society based on race and identity i reckon you're probably better placed than anyone that i've ever had on the show to answer the question this question so here it is is humanity a shit show are we doomed to infinite tribalism uh, not at all um <clears throat> I think that we, we, we're in control and in more ways than we realize. And the, I'm a sort of a big picture person. So trying to answer this question, um, I almost immediately zoom out to concepts that are, that are absolutely huge and for the uninitiated uh, can seem very disoriented and very disconnected from <clears throat> not only your question but their their actual experience so but i still would like to do it that way for me um what the the main issue we have is that we have a fundamental misunderstanding as a species about about who and what we are and what reality is you know the the world that we experience around us what the nature of that is and it's that fundamental misunderstanding that's kind of brought us to where we are now and um that misunderstanding entails feeling that life is has no purpose has no meaning and that uh, nature and everything that we see in the world is a random accident a lot of it may be very beautiful but it arose we're told out of a primordial soup out of mud um, from nothing for no reason and, and despite all the amazing things that we see around us in the natural world, it's for nothing, from nothing, and it will decay into nothing. So the whole thing is basically a waste of time, a waste of space, a waste of energy. It's a random accident. So from you and I and the person listening to this right up to as far out into the cosmos as our instruments will currently allow us to see, it's all a random accident. I don't see it that way at all. <laughs> I see the whole thing as having an inherent drive, um, a teleology, you know, a direction of travel. Doesn't necessarily mean to like some kind of omega point, um, but it's not um, a random accident. And that uh, we, whether we realize it or not, have our each have a part to play in in this unfolding. Now, if people are unfamiliar with some of those concepts and some of those terms either sounds like sort of new age mumbo jumbo or it sounds vaguely religious but um the cutting edge science has been telling us for quite a long time now you mentioned quantum physics earlier Hmm. that the 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 view of the world that's called realism or materialism that the five sense reality is all that there is um, that has actually been rendered untenable by established and repeated um, lab experiments. Um, and people just need to go and, and look at that. Why? I've just finished reading a little book, actually. It's by 
a an author called Bernardo Castrup. Uh, surname is K-A-S-T-R-U-P. And I mentioned his little book. It's not even his latest book, but he's been a former radio guest of mine. And the book's called Meaning in Absurdity. And it's, I've just finished reading it. And mm-hmm. it covers a lot of the topics that he touches upon in his work in general and in lots of his other books. But it, it just is a little primer. And it, it reminded me of what those scientific experiments are that have meant that the, the, the purely materialistic view of the world, that, which is what, how most of us view it, is untenable it just it cannot hold um so his take on the view of reality is the the, the most the, the one i've found that is the most plausible because it accounts for most of what we experience there are so many things that people experience in life whether it's dreams whether it's just strange anomalous experiences or whether it's even falling in love these things that cannot be explained by modern materialist science so in a roundabout way i'm trying to address your question you know is humanity a shit show and are we doomed uh, to tribalism hmm. no but we have this misapprehension of who and what we are and that's led us to well if life is meaningless and purposeless then <clears throat> all there really is is this little brief gap between birth and death mm-hmm. and here we are on this you know third rock from the sun so all we can really do is just try and have a good time while we're here, exploit the planet's resources because that's all there is. And in doing that, it's brought us to where we are right now. We find ourselves in the early stages of 2021 and the mess that we're in. And Lord knows this latest pandemic catastrophe, whatever you think of it, or the origins of it or the reasons for it, that's not that's just the latest. <laughs> that's just the newest and, and quite a long yes. line. Great. Uh, and it's very easy to look back at the history of humanity as we know it, you know, perhaps a few thousand years. Maybe you can go back 10,000 years BC to Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, for example, you know, the, the archaeological finds there. Maybe you can even go back to the end of the last ice age. Beyond that, it gets very hazy and just think, oh, well, the whole time, the whole thing's been a bloody car crash. It hasn't, but however troubled it has been, that's still a very that's a not even a blink of an eye in cosmic time so that's what i try and do which is you know obviously i do many different topics in the show but as far as the the big questions of like why are we here where do we come from where are we going i'm I'm zooming out to look at you know cosmological time and also and, and the basic idea is behind what i'm doing is that the universe reality as we see it is fundamentally mental consciousness is fundamental not matter so the way to think of the universe imagine it as a giant thought and the way to think about whatever you're doing today going around your home or if you go out to do errands you go to work you go to school probably not doing much of that with the pandemic but think of that a little bit like a dream because it's really when you look at the the physics of it and the metaphysics of it is very, very similar to the experience that you go through at night when you dream. It's just that this particular dream that we're all co-creating, um, we've become, we've forgotten that we're dreaming as, as you do when you dream at night. You know, when you dream yeah. at night, you take it absolutely, you take it absolutely at face value. You don't question it. You know, however fucked up and weird it is, you take it at face value. And effectively, what we've got here is another nested 
dream within a dream. Um, it just so happens that this one is particularly persistent and it appears very consistent um, because um, unlike your personal dreams at night, billions of souls have uh, solidified the parameters and the rules for this dream and most of us agree on them. But there are so many, and this is where Bernardo's little book comes in, there are so many anomalies that are not accounted for in by mainstream science. And it's these anomalies, these weird things that people experience, things that they don't quite often don't talk to other people about because they're scared to. These are little things that are saying, hey, that little thing that science couldn't explain, rather than just ignoring it, how about considering that that's pointing to something, that there's more to all of this than meets the eye or the ears or the nose or the, the you know the touch whatever so it's just is it like elon musk hypothesized that it could be we could be living in a simulation or do you think it's closer to the leonardo dicaprio film inception or neither i haven't seen inception but i, I know roughly what it's about i think the the simulation theory is a useful metaphor I don't think it's literally like that, uh, but then, you know, then the word literal begins to break down. But I think it's a useful metaphor because a lot of people know about the virtual reality idea, whether they've got the, you know, play virtual reality games or they've got a headset, but they, they understand the basic concept. Maybe they've seen some movies, read some books um, about the idea that we're all avatars in a game or something like that. That works. That goes, that's a really useful tool if people are trying to wrap their heads around some of the basic concepts. Yeah, it's a good place to start. I understand what you're saying, yeah. And it's certainly, when my father died, I remember having this this fantastical experience where I felt like, oh, he died about 10 years ago, and I've only really felt comfortable talking about it now, not because I'm upset or anything like that, but because I didn't understand it. And I still don't really, but the best way I can describe it is when I read a Neckar Tolle book, and he talked about the, uh, oh, God, what's the word that he used? Enlightened, enlightenment. You can experience it for 30 seconds, which I think everybody's had a bit of a touch of and they've received good news or what have you. Um, or some people, like him, get touched by it and it just stays with them forever. Mine lasted about three weeks. And I felt as though, the, the only way I can describe it, it was it was very similar to, not that I've taken hardcore drugs or anything like that but what i imagine what heroin might feel like because everything made sense and that's what i've heard that's why heroin of course is so addictive because it's certainly in the beginning and afterwards it's just a it's just hell but um everything just made sense i woke up and it was like everything felt like it was in order and strange things happened through that time i i think of something i don't know we went and my wife and i went and bought a couch and i had a particular couch in mind it's a minor consumerist item i get that but the thing that I had in my mind was actually there and it was the colour and the cushions were what I wanted as well because I like a lot of uh, bush sort of stuff that mirrors our Australian, uh, the stuff that's got the environment around me here. But it was the first time I, I truly felt connected to the unexplained universe. The mysteries of the universe were revealed just slightly and I feel like it was a gift that my father gave to me. So I definitely believe that there's something from the great beyond and I, and I totally agree too that the nihilist's perspective, which I know you weren't saying that exactly, but I interpret it that way, is wrong because we don't just come from a primordial soup and it's not just this weird Darwin random thing that occurs. But 
I think the people that have that view, certainly that I've spoken to or interacted with, absolutely the people that I've dived a bit deeper on to their threads in Twitter and Facebook, which is like diving into a lunatic asylum these days. But my point that I want to underline here is that it's a funny way to make the point, but here I go. Wokeness, identity politics, and the cult of diversity, all these neo-Marxist constructs and philosophies that, that are designed to push society toward totalitarianism, communism, and socialism. And this is what we're seeing in the West at the moment. And these people don't, they don't seem to be convinced of the scale of misery inflicted by either, they just seem to think that socialism and Marxism is this utopia totally different to national socialism what happened in germany in the late 30s and 40s of course but to me it occupies the same philosophical territory they don't understand and they they do not research the real history of 20th century china and ussr just at university not too long ago someone was talking about the benefits of communism in cuba or something whilst they ignored the the hundreds of thousands of people i think i'm right in saying at this point in time that have crossed that bloody crossing there to get to Florida and further potentially, and the many tens of thousands that have died to do it to get away from that bloody regime when Castro was in power. But my point here for you, Greg, was that why do you think, I've shared with you some of my esoteric experiences, but why do you think we as humanity, certainly on available evidence on social media, keep window dressing the horrible mistakes of the past, the violence and the extreme torture that occurred in the past underneath certain political ideologies. Why do we insist or why do they insist on bringing it into the present as an alternative solution? <clears throat> well, as you pointed out, it's not really an alternative solution. It might be somewhat of an alternative to exactly what people might be living through at the moment. But it's a bit, I mean, there are people still alive today who lived through some of the worst ravages of the Soviet Union you know, people should, if there are young people out there extolling the virtues of this, they should, if they can't go and talk to these people, they should at least read some of the accounts. Um, but I think we're at a, and this is a bit of a cliche in itself, we might be at a, a bit of a crunch point, a bit of an inflection point, trying to push through to something quite different. But I think mm. we're kind of like, um, like a goldfish kind of butting its, its face up against the glass of the bowl, you know what I mean? And feeling stuck so therefore looking looking back without maybe realizing that we're looking back you know reaching out for something that for for you know for another generation feels radically different and maybe it is radically mm. different what they grew up with but but actually it's just repurposed um in this case uh, communism and if you mentioned this great reset agenda if people don't know what that is just google great reset you'll be there all day um, but if that's enacted even partially, or, you know, it, it's not going to work because it's a rehash of ideas that have contributed to where we are right now. So, and I think that all the wokeness agenda and political correctness and identity politics and all that other stuff um, is a way of us collectively distracting ourselves from the very real existential problem which can be traced back to what I was saying earlier, which is this misapprehension of who and what we are. So we're being enjoined in, in to evolve or die. You know, we have to move past this point comprehensively, not just um, 
do a more high-tech version of something that we had before and think that's somehow going to move us forward. It won't. Um, all the the technology that would be involved with, well, technocracy takes its name. Uh, again, if people don't know what that is, just Google technocracy. Mm. This, system, this system of ruling people, of organizing society that's been talked about a lot now as a response to the pandemic as being necessary and the only way to move forward. As I say, it's just a high-tech version of stuff that has run before. That will run at best maybe for a few years and we'll find ourselves right back where we are now going, oh my God, crisis, crisis, crisis. What are we going to do? And they'll be, oh, I don't know. We'll look around for a version of something else that's already been tried. And we've seen this now. You saw that with the financial crash in 2008 and how the bubbles that were supposedly had been blown too big at that point have, have since then only got bigger. And the, the time from one uh, potential collapse or crisis point to another is getting shorter. Yes. You know, so that's telling us something. It's a bit like a, you mentioned drug use. So it might be a bit like a, a hardcore drug user um, do, you know, using, say, you know, whatever it happens to be, heroin for a number of years, spiraling down into a health crisis, being hospitalized, getting partially clean, getting out, starting again. It won't be so long before they're back in, in hospital again. And if they keep doing that, it'll get a shorter and shorter time. You know, so the message is you need to change your behavior. And that is the case with us. Now, collectively, a lot of people advocating technocracy, and I don't want to get bogged down in just this one particular thing that's going on at the minute, but it's where a lot of people's minds are concentrated. So mm -hmm. advocates of the of technocracy and the Great Reset Agenda um, you can look at some of what they're writing and saying. And so I agree, you know, we have these systems that are under great stress, you know, global systems, systems upon which our societies depend, um, that they are, you know, at breaking point or they're, they're severely damaged and they're not sustainable. We do need to do things differently. That's correct. That doesn't necessarily mean that the formula that they've come up with um, is the way forward because it isn't. It's just all it will do is immiserate millions, probably billions of people for um, a number of years, unspecified number of years, um, as I said, until we more or less find ourselves back having the same conversation again. Why, why do you think, so I use the, the example in Melbourne, in the state of Victoria here in Australia. You've probably been to Melbourne a few times, so you know what I'm talking about. But uh, that state's run by, a, we call him um, Dan the Dictator, and Victoria is now called Danistan because this guy's name is Dan Andrews. And... Uh, that's, that city had the most draconian lockdown laws enforced of, I think, any Western, uh, in any state or city in any Western democracy, in that there were people posting things on Facebook. I don't even necessarily agree with them, by the way, but they should be bloody allowed to post things on Facebook, like, I think, uh, paraphrasing again, um, that the lockdown's wrong and we should be able to stand up for our rights, that sort of thing. Black, I shit you not, mate, police wearing black uniforms they might have been dark navy, but across the screen, they look like black uniforms. So you know where I'm headed with the old black shirts. We're arresting them in their own home. So they arrested this woman, a pregnant woman, who had no idea what the hell the police were there for, but was go was just incredulous that she was being arrested. Go on, all along with her, because what else could she do? But we're seeing this. We're always seeing that people are com complicit to totalitarianism. And that worries the shit out of me, I've got to say. And 
I'm absolutely not advocating for a response like what happened in the Capitol Hill. They're just a bunch of idiots yelling it because they just feel disempowered. Instead of using their brains, they decided to be seen and be heard. And I know uh, one of uh, one of our own, meaning heavy metal zone, uh, John Schaefer from Iced Earth got caught up in all of that. But I guess that's my point that is that you mentioned something earlier about consumerism. You know, we, we aren't about just buying things and consume, consuming items and goods and the like that isn't our, our true nature but one of the one of the the interesting statistics was that um in the state of victoria or melbourne specifically i should say the rate of buying things online of course because it's a pandemic and you're locked inside your house it went through the roof so amazon orders ebay orders this sort of thing people were uh, doing whatever they could to get stuff delivered to their home now that's not just because they couldn't get out people actually enjoyed that shit the federal government here actually had something called job keeper and job seeker. Effectively, either way, whether you lost your job or whether you were looking for a job, or or you you had the business that could norm, normally normally trade in non-pandemic times could no longer trade, like a restaurant, for example, because of course you can't bloody eat in a restaurant in certain places these days. It's certainly the case was the case. It might still be the case in Melbourne. But my point is, people just seem to be happy to sit at home and be told what to do. Now. I always felt, I think the Irish are pretty similar to the Australians. I mean, it's a, a lot of our culture. Certainly, I, I, I look at my mother's family through the lens of Irish traditions through Australian bush culture. That very neatly summarises a lot of what Australia is about. And we were always, Ned Kelly is one of our uh, one of our icons, if you like. And of course, he fought the law and didn't quite win, but he sure as hell put up a good fight. And he was born on Ireland. My point being mm-hmm. is that we've always had a very healthy scepticism and cynicism toward either side of government here. And for the first time in my life, I'm seeing people adopt American style and potentially even British style admiration for political leaders, like as if they're actually good at fucking anything, that they're not just there because they wanted to just win something and obtain power with this, this psychopathic <clears throat> urge to obtain power. So do you think, after making that point, do you think that, this pandemic, using the example I've just given, has exposed people's tendency to enjoy being told what to do, like what we're seeing in the United States. They, you know, it's time to heal, of course, now, according to Biden, because Trump's out of power and Big Daddy's in and Kamala Harris with her wicked witch-like cackle, that <laughs> thing that she does, uh, uh, they're in now and they'll fix everything because they're the government. But for me, and I'd like to feel for many other Aussies and probably a lot of the Irish too, mate, we just want to be left alone to lead our lives. But I feel like that's slipping away now and people want more governmental and and regulatory interference, which makes no sense to me if you've got some get up and go and you want to lead your life. I'm not talking, and and, there's so many other caveats I can put in there, but I won't. But my point is, after all that, wrapped in a question is, do you get the sense that people are just sort of tired and they just enjoy being told what to do for a period of time with all these lockdowns that are happening. Yeah, well, people have been encouraged to be that way, and that was in train before the pandemic. Um, and again, it's, it, it, it is the, the, this idea of life having no meaning and no purpose does filter into that um, from above and below. And of course, with, this, with the economy and there's various world systems I mentioned earlier coming under more and more pressure. More people have been finding it harder to enjoy the good life, you know, that we're all promised and to get ahead 
in material terms, because, you know, of course, for many people, that's all there is. We're encouraging you that's all there is. Get out and, you know, go shopping for that furniture, you know, buy that widescreen TV and um, enjoy Netflix and, and all, you know, because that, that's, that's all there is. So people can find it harder to enjoy that material life. Mm. And so they've been, they've been looking around for answers and then, um, but pe- the governments have been trying to put a patchwork over things um, and just, you know, don't worry. Yeah, there was, there was a financial crisis and, and there is more unemployment and um, the cost of living is going up even as wages or you know, incomes is going down. Um, but don't worry, you know, we're, it's, the good times are just around the corner and it's become increasingly obvious to people that that's not the case. Um, so something like the pandemic comes along, it's a perfect opportunity to to basically formalize that dependence on the state sort of arrangement if you see what i mean yeah. uh, because even if that if that hadn't come along there more and more people were dependent they weren't able to provide for themselves let's put it that way so they're dependent on other people or other institutions or the state to basically look after them um, even though the state doesn't have any money doesn't generate any money other than it takes from people so the pandemic has been the perfect opportunity to put into overdrive all of that and for a lot of people um especially initially during the the pandemic lockdowns it was a relief um to just have money coming in and yeah. just to be able to do to, to do what a lot of people want to do which is like not very much to kind of sit on the sofa and watch tv because a lot of people are engaged in things in their in their lives in jobs and even, even careers that they would they would choose to leave behind if they won the lottery, for example. How many people have got enough interest and passion in what they do to keep doing it if money was no longer a reason to do it? So that's been perfect, the, the pandemic in that sense. And of course, people have been encouraged to be afraid. They, they've had, if they're susceptible to fear, as all of us are to some extent, they've had the bejesus scared out of them, you know, with this unrelenting fear porn and propaganda. So they've been told to be the jellyfish that they are, they, you know, and to wait for further instructions. Do not move. And of course, we've been forbidden. Those of us that want to move and want to keep living, we've been mm-hmm. blocked more or less from doing so. So all of us find ourselves more or less in the same, in the same boat. And um, <clears throat> so that's basically where we're up to um, now. And the as far as the behavior of those police, for example, we have been the the wokeness culture, identity politics has pitted everybody against everybody. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what the advances were for for female emancipation during the 20th century, for racial justice and equality, all the advances that were made through the 20th century, a lot of that seems to be almost be going out the window now, as if no progress has been made. You know, you're racist. I'm racist. You're sexist. I'm sexist. We're all, you know, we're all homophobes. We're all transphobes, whatever it happens to be. And that that pits people against each other. And that, again, it's, it's like a divide and conquer idea. So therefore, people are not unified physically. They can't be together. Um, they feel divided as in that even if they are, have find someone else who they appear to have something in common with. Don't focus on that. What are your differences? And the whole pandemic response has unleashed a very ugly totalitarian streak 
in a lot of people who you mentioned that people being powerless. There are a lot of people who have never had any agency over their own lives, never had any power control. They've always felt they were being told what to do all their lives. And mm. boss man was always telling them what to do. And the things that interested them, they could never really pursue because they always had to go to work and be ordered around. Now it's their turn. It's their turn to stand outside the grocery store and say to people, you know, stand there, don't move, step forward, you know, one at a time. Where's your mask? It's their opportunity to shine. Yes. You know, yes. To, to get a, and there's also a certain type of person, not the petty little person on a power trip like that, but certain type of people, more of a psychopathic leanings, who this is really their moment because they're normally have to operate in the shadows or they find themselves operating in a very narrow band of society because most more well-balanced normal human beings uh, will recognize and reject psychopaths um, but they are a type of person a very small subset of human beings that do seek power and they've certainly been enabled a lot um, in the current situation so I know I've ranged quite widely there but I hope I've addressed the, the points you were trying to get at. I'll throw out, so if anybody's interested in um, the a response to, uh, you know, identity politics and the politics of race and, and culture and these things that actually most of us do understand what is right and wrong. And we do just want to live with our fellow human beings in peace. And we don't really care what color people are or what they get up to in the bedroom. And we don't care if somebody wants to have a sex change operation. It's people, people should just do what they want if they're not hurting anyone else. But we're all being told that all of this is a massive problem. Um, a really good book, um, well, he's a commentator called uh, Douglas Murray, but uh, his book, The Madness of Crowds, um, is very good. On, on these subjects and that, that was published pre-pandemic so it's not necessarily a response to the, the the hyper kind of hysteria in those areas that we're seeing now hmm. are you catholic or protestant uh, well i was brought up born in a protestant family and brought up that way but i i don't have i don't i don't identify i don't identify as oh, i know i know yeah but by birth exactly hmm. what i'm saying yeah as somebody who whose family no doubt uh, lived and experienced the troubles. In other words, real troubles, real shit, real things that were happening, real division. Does this slightly infuriate you? What's going on now? To your point, we're being told that, uh, what was the recent one? I had a conversation with someone the other day, a close friend of ours, but you don't bother to correct people because it's just, you know, there's no point. But uh, she was saying that homosexuals are still being beaten up in Brisbane. And, I, and I'm in news media. Well, I was. I'm out now. But uh, I was like, well, I know where to go to find out if these things happen. And believe me, that would be front page news. And there'd probably be a uh, probably be a march down Queen Street here in Brisbane or George Street if uh, if that had actually happened. But she's saying, yeah, no, it happens fairly regularly that homosexuals get beaten up. And I said, who by? She goes, oh, you know, footy players. Like, don't get me wrong, but I, I think she clearly made it up. And if she didn't, she's referring to something that probably happened in the 60s or 70s. Um, but I feel like as though, just to underline the point with the troubles in Northern Ireland and the like, is that we're so desperate to separate ourselves through victimhood. For you as somebody who, and and, and speak as much or as little about this as, as you feel, you know, there's no pressure in other words, but was your family affected by the troubles and does that do you think that that gives you a unique perspective on this race to victimhood that we're experiencing now? Um, <clears throat> well, there's two interesting things there. One 
no, we weren't really affected by the troubles. Uh, in, in my experience, I, I was born when the the modern era of trouble started uh, within a couple of within a few weeks of it, actually. Hmm. In 1969, I was born. But in my life experience, you know, people were shot, people were blown up, but nothing that impacted me directly and nothing in the places where I lived. There, there wasn't there wasn't much trouble. Most of it. So the interesting thing about that is about media perception and media reporting, because when I first came to England, uh, people, oh, how did you get to the shops in, in Northern Ireland? What do you mean, how did we get to the shops? We walked or drove. Yeah, but yes. how, did you not have to dodge bullets? You know, no, we didn't have to dodge bullets. It wasn't like that. So there was this hyped, you know, media reporting of what was going on. Now, thousands of people died, but it wasn't as it was being reported by the media. So, so, and the second part of that is that, um, yes, it, I, I do look, and I wouldn't even necessarily tie this to, to my experience in Northern Ireland, say, because I didn't really have any direct experience, but, you know, people were actually being gunned down and blown up, but they still went about their daily lives. They just said, we have to live. I, but there's threats everywhere. Life is not safe. We have to live. You know, we don't have to be cavalier about it. But it's up, most people, again, if you're not endangering other, other people, it is for you to judge the level of risk that is suitable for you. And people don't, despite what we're being told now, people don't want to be safe all the time. And if more people want to be safe now, it's because, they've had, as I said, they've had the bejesus scared out of them. Why do you think people go and do extreme sports? Why do you yes. think some people inject heroin and do heinous amounts of other risky behaviors? Because they want, they're looking for an edgy experience. They're looking for something that makes them feel alive. Even a brush with death that can make you feel alive. You mentioned it after the, the passing of your father. That time you described was something that a lot of people are seeking. And Abraham Maslow, psychologist, and later Colin Wilson, yeah. Studied, the, yeah. the author, they spoke mm -hmm. about this. They spoke about this, the peak experience, you know, the peak experience. That's, mm -hmm. I think that's what you were you were you some of the filters between your mind and the overmind, you know, the, the greater reality that's out there, that was down for a while. That force field was weaker for a while and there's more stuff was coming through. You know, and we have access to that all the time if we wish. And that's part of our future as far as I can see, is understanding that and accessing that. Uh, but we're not, you know, in good shape for that at the minute. Though as I to again paraphrase myself from earlier everything that's going on now that we're being pushed to evolve. So within crisis, there is opportunity. So my hope is that all of this will force, you know, transformation through trauma will force more people to ask again, fundamental questions about their life and about reality and not just double down on trying to hide and feel safe until the threats go away. They will not go away. Life is not safe. You know, the opportunity as to paraphrase George Orwell in 1984, the point is not to stay alive. The point is to stay human. That's such a good point. Yeah, I love that. That's an awesome quote right there. Yeah, experience things, be things, make mistakes, learn from your mistakes, fall in love, fall out of love, learn to love again, these sort of things. It, it seems, do you, do you have a view on why people seem to be hardwired to, to be so risk averse that, they have things like warning signs on children's play equipment that you could, you know, I don't know, get hurt if you're on a swing set, this sort of bullshit. Is there, is, is there anything from your experience 
with all of the research you've done and the conversations you've had that, that gives us a bit of an answer as to uh, to to why there's this uh, you know helicopter parents this sort of thing we see them around, my wife and I see them around us you know with our kids I'm, I too I'm not saying I'm happy when my, my children fall off a scooter or a bike but they bloody learn something afterwards when they graze themselves almost uh, pretty badly if you know what I'm saying but we did you and I probably did that God knows I fell off my bike often enough when I was a kid but these days there seems to be a disclaimer on everything and I don't know whether it's this colonization of American litigation that the Western world seems to have experienced or whether or not we've just had this uh, this 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 thing where uh, you watch a uh, a film and uh, or not even a film it might be a news report and it might be a someone espousing a view that you don't necessarily agree with the safe spaces there you go the snowflakes and the safe spaces and all of this sort of shit is is, is there any psychology behind that you know they want to move to a space these safe spaces where literally nothing challenges them yeah i think that your point about american litigation is valid i think it certainly has some of the roots can be extended into that you know we're just worried about what somebody will do how much it will cost you if you don't warn somebody about a potential risk, even one that's really obvious. And the whole safe space and snowflake thing, again, is really about, again, trying to distract from real world problems, but also not having been mollycoddled. So not allowed to fall off your bike, mm. not allowed to be exposed to ideas that you might not like. And if you grew up like that, you're gonna not. You're not gonna deal very well, and this is why it ha- tends to happen in universities, particularly when people leave the home for the first time. You're not gonna handle at all well hearing people saying things that you, you've never heard before, you don't agree with, or you don't understand. One of the reasons I wanted to go to university, and one of the things I most enjoyed was meeting people from all over the country, and in some cases from around the world, who had very different cultures and very different ideas, and who challenged me on things. You know, that was good. I didn't have to agree with them, you know, but I didn't have to demand that they be shut down. Because what, what, what does that look like if everybody thinks that everybody they disagree with doesn't have any right to be heard? How does that actually work? What does that look like? We all end up like each of us on a different planet, you know, all on our own, you know, so we, that we, there's no opportunity for any outside information whatsoever to, you know, impinge on our on our feeling of safety and security and again and it's also the idea if you're not able to grow up and learn to be independent um and you know to to make mistakes but also to to form opinions to change your mind then you're very very vulnerable um not only in your body but in your mind you're very vulnerable to somebody saying something to you that you don't like so when i would maybe have kids at school might say something to me that I didn't like. I remember very early on, I learned the lesson. I was told by, by the adults, don't listen to them. You know, it's, it's sticks and stones may break your bones, that whole thing. You know, mm. if somebody physically assaults you, you're going to have to deal with that in whatever way you can. Call the cops, hit them back, whatever. You know, curl up into a ball, whatever you think is going to work best in that situation. If somebody calls, you know, if somebody... You can say anything they like about you, about who you are, about your identity, about your sexuality, about your race. How you respond to that is a choice. Taking offense is a choice. Now, I understand if there's, I say, if there's a degree of physical intimidation to that, that's another level. But 
I think pe- kids have grown up so mollycoddled, and I realise I'm sounding like an old man now, but I don't care because it's part of the. <laughs> we, we still have to get past. True, we though. have to get past that. Pre- we have to get past that prejudice as well. Mm. Kids have been so mollycoddled that many of them cannot cope with any kind of physical risk whatsoever, and any kind of um, psychological risk, as it were, being confronted with an idea. Oh, he said this thing. I don't like that idea. Deal with it. It's an idea, you know. Yeah, that's shocking. And and I've got to say, because I only went to university recently, obviously a mature age student, um, I went back after only completing a semester back in 1996 and uh, I thought, bugger it, I'm going to do this because I want to have some academic rigour. But I, I went to a private uni, Bond Uni on the Gold Coast. So thank God I didn't have to go and, and suffer through the bullshit at a public uni, as we call them here in Australia, I meaning they get their funding primarily through the government and it's just subsidised through a, a nominal fee, nowhere near what I had to pay. Uh, to go to Bond Uni. But um, what I noticed was, and, and, and give me a feedback on this, I found that people aged between, so they were about 17 to about 22, 23, they actually have a lot in common with us because they've observed this generation that's gone before them, this generation that I'd loosely define between about 25 years of age and 40 years of age. So what would that make them? That I don't, I, I've lost track of the, the, the nominal categories but does that make the millennials and gen x and y or no i'm gen we're gen x aren't we but gen z and y or something like that but they seem to have sort of taken a deep breath as, as i say this has just been my, my interpretation of it um i've taken a, a deep breath taken a step back and seen the lunacy that these people are carrying on with and go life isn't actually that difficult but you've got this 15 year bracket where I'm not saying all of the bad ideas come from these people, but when you look at some of these people who are strong advocates for the Marxism in Black Lives Matter and they push these totalitarian ideals, they're dressed up as compassion, which is another point I want to make later about the weaponizing of compassion and turning it into this this god awful thing where you know you know where you do like black lives don't you therefore you will allow us to do x y and z and one of them is we want to break up the nuclear family it's like how the hell is confusion of correlation and cause or whatever other fallacy you want to mention uh in there but sorry i'll make my point which is that there seems to be (laughs) this 15 year age gap 25 year olds to 40 where the majority of these bad ideas came in now i put that down to the long march of the left through public institutions so we're talking about um, I talk about public uh, educational institutions here in Australia, so the public schools, the state schools, and the universities, which started. I, I you know, Jordan talk. Jordan Peterson, of course, talks about this in much more detail than I will. But uh, started in the late fifties or early sixties, and a lot of those people are still around, and they're just chipper that a lot of their ideas are being adopted on on mass right now. But are you, are you getting that sense as well that there is a, a there is a glimmer of hope with some of the youth that are coming through? that are challenging some of these ideas and going, yeah, life isn't actually that difficult. And, and I know that because, and I think this is where it happens in Australia too, because we're such a multicultural country, we've got a third of the people that, that have Australian citizenship, I think I'm right in saying, or they're permanent residents, are born overseas. Now, a lot of them come from Asian countries, like my wife's parents, my, my, my wife's mother. So we go to the Philippines and we see that the quality of life over there is not what it is here. And the reason why we see that is because we're integrated into the community, not because we're staying at a five-star hotel. So I, I guess that's my point there is that I think you're seeing the the outcomes, particularly in Australia, I can only talk about Australia, but I know Britain is very similar in terms of its, its um, ethnic makeup these days, that 
you had a lot of assumptions in a certain age group because it wasn't about lived experience. It's about indoctrination and potentially even philosophy. Whereas you've got this other group coming through that go, no, oh, I'm born in Australia or I'm born in Great Britain, but my parents come from this country and I go back there and I can tell you, I want to live here and it's a lot better here. Do you have a perspective on that? <clears throat> well, I'm not a parent, um, though I do have um, friends around about my age who do have kids, most of which are growing up now. Um, for obvious reasons, but I would say I, I see a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, for what you're saying, uh, which is encouraging. You know, but it's sort of uh, younger generation than the young, the previously younger generation. Um, the only direct experience I can really offer is the feedback I get from you know the podcasts I do in terms of you know people who email me and respond and and what I learn about what generation they are. And the majority of them, I would say, are younger than me. Um, and yeah, so I do hear from people who, if I had kids, they would be around about, you know, I'd be old enough to be their father and who seem to have um, some really good insights and some clarity on a lot of the issues we're talking about. Now, of course, they're self-selecting, you know, because they're listening to what I'm doing, what other similar people are doing in the first place. And they've got enough, they've got enough um, energy to actually take the trouble to write and give their thoughts. Mm. Um, so all I can say is really, I, I can't give you a comprehensive response, but I, I do see anecdotal evidence for that. And I think that as the these artificial protective bubbles, despite what's happening with the pandemic response, I think with these wider, more long-term trends, as these um, protective bubbles begin to sort of crack and shatter, we may find younger people being forced, uh, you know, to make their own way more, to make up their own minds more, to to differentiate between what they feel inside and what they're being fed more. Um, I think that will just be, you know, a necessity. Um I think back to you mentioned, you know, like our childhoods, for example, mm. how much freer um, we were, not just literally physically to do things, but to, despite there being so much less information around, you, we didn't have access to the uh, to the web, and we may have had limited access to books, but um, how much looser things were um, in terms of, uh, you know having your own ideas and opinions about things. But in my experience as well, how much less tension there seemed to be around um, the issues we now come under, that now come under the banner of, of wokeness, if you see mm. what I mean. So things that are now apparently a major issue, you know, a, a real societal crisis that must be addressed. Uh, you know, it's outrageous that thing, you know, we must tear down these statues. We must vandalize this shopping mall in the name of this issue. But, you know, when I was a child, these, yeah, these things, there were problems in these areas and they were still being addressed. So, for example, being being a gay man in, in, in my society was more challenging when I was growing up in some ways than it is now. But it was, you know, it was on the path to things were getting better. The issues were being addressed. But whether it's sexuality or race or any of these other issues to listen to some people now you would think that we were in an all-time low yeah <laughs> in in terms of some of these um social issues 
Yeah, and, and I agree totally. I mean, this is this is the issue with categorising members of society through a spectrum of perceived totems of victimhood and, and nominating concessions. You know, this is the whole thing with identity politics, that a, a citizen's character and contribution are secondary to all these immutable characteristics like religion, race, sexuality, uh, sexuality, social background and class. And and I, I, I kind of feel, man, I say this, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I kind of feel like, homosexuality given if you look at that that culture broadly speaking that culture is so much more mainstream than straight culture these days given you know you've got the harry styles dressing i don't know whether you call that even gay i don't know what the hell it is but he's dressing like the queen mother in a recent photo shoot i don't know whether you saw that but it's just this like this inversion of accepted norms that you and i grew up with and they're called so this is an interesting thing for me as a parent uh, with my daughters, uh, we're taught that sexuality through this woke prism is a societal construct that kids are told you have certain genitalia, which makes you this or that. And they go, no, that's not actually the case. You can make up your own mind. And uh, that is bullshit. I can tell you that firsthand. I, I don't know whether you can see me. I've got a Christian T-shirt on at the moment. Okay. My kids joke. They know that my two favourite things are watching rugby union, rugby league, so that's one thing, and listening to extreme metal, death metal, as they broadly call it. How entry, how interested, and keep in mind, I pretty much do both of those two things a lot. I'm down at Bond watching the rugby down there quite a bit too when it's rugby season. I take them with me. They hate it. <laughs> I'm trying to indoctrinate them into this stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're wearing pink. We have to go to a toy shop beforehand to get them a toy, <laughs> and... I, I try as I might, but <laughs> I, I'm not trying to indoctrinate them, by the way, but they're with me a lot when I do these things because I enjoy being in their company and I think they enjoy being in mine when I do these sorts of things, probably because they get something in return or so they can get a toy or what have you. But I can tell you firsthand, not even anecdotally, that, that the message that has been sent out to people who don't have children that believe this, that, that then want to believe this garbage, and even some of these idiots that do have children that, that think that, oh, it's absolutely a societal construct. Like, like you know, with the climate change debate, so believe the science. But then when it comes to sexuality, it's, oh, no, that's on a spectrum. So, but hang on a sec. Biology is determined that you only have two sexes. And then they go, no, no, it's not the case. It's not the case. It's like, yeah, that is absolutely definitely the case. And there are... There, there are um, there are associated characteristics to each sex. That's not that they're immutable, but you, they're far more common. And um, sorry, I forgot the point I was going to make there after I said all of that. But I, I guess I guess my point um, would have to be that this slide into lunacy. That's it. That's what it's going to be. This slide into lunacy with this sort of stuff, and that's a, that's a good point. So when it comes to sexuality. No, don't believe the science. That's now that's a societal thing. You know, people can make up their mind what they are based on a sliding scale and God knows how many pronouns there are out there. But when it comes to climate change, even though there is there is some evidence to suggest humanity is changing the climate, but the real question should be how much is humanity changing the climate? But all we're being told, like what's happening in the US at the moment, they're, they're freezing through their coldest winter in God knows how long. And uh, they don't have enough energy to, uh, to to power the heaters and this sort of thing. So so in, in places like Texas, I know because I was reading Lucas Mann from Rings of Saturns. Uh, he's he lives in Texas, and I was reading his one of his social posts. But he was saying that the uh, pipes have frozen. I thought Texas was like Queensland. I mean, if you got snow here, hell hell's frozen over literally. I mean, it's bloody hot in most of Queensland. It just wouldn't. 
wouldn't snow here. But um, after that fairly long point, which I almost lost my way in, but I'm bringing it back now, okay, those two points there, do, do you think that they're the canary in the coal mine for the for the lunacy of the whole thing? So they're saying, believe the science on one thing, but totally disregarded on another. Do you think that that's the barometer and therefore it's a bit more of a, a, an indication that we're fairly close, maybe potentially, maybe a couple of years away from coming out of this? Yeah, because it's very schizophrenic. You know, it's not sustainable. Um, the, the levels of cognitive dissonance going on at the minute, um, you know, amongst people to try and maintain two uh, contrary positions, which is basically what cognitive dis dissonance is. You know, you've been told one thing on one hand, another thing on the other, the two cannot coexist, but you have to make them so in order to keep your worldview integrated. I think more and more people are either through just mental breakdown of whatever form or just through just, you know, a, a moment of clarity, just going, hang on a minute, are, are questioning that because it's not sustainable. Um, so the, the first thing I would encourage people to do is is to have the courage to, um, to I mean, they might not be used to doing this, but to, to think about what you've, what your instincts and what your gut tell you about um, any, any subject. And you don't have to be, whether it's beyond your uh, particular experience or not, you don't have to be a scientist to have um, a gut failure, an instinctive feeling about changes to the planet, for example, or about questions of, are there more than two sexes? I mean, obviously there aren't. So if you've convinced yourself that like Heinz 57 varieties, that there are 57 sexes, mm. um, you know, why is that? What, why are you convinced of that? Is that because of something you've read or is it because that you empirically know that to be the case, that you understand that to be the case? So, um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm losing my own way now, so you just pick up on what <laughs> Well, we've I'm gone saying. into the rabbit hole, haven't we? I mean, this is the problem with it all because you can't keep up with it. And that's what I think. I, 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 get, I get internally so frustrated with people because I think that some, some of these so-called thought leaders are psychopaths on the left. And they do have a mental illness. Certainly, I'll, I'll say now, mate, that some of the most virulently left-wing people that I've met through my life, and they've, some of the things they've said to me have, have been truly shocking, just the way that they've treated people. And you'll be, you'll be having a beer and you'll say something and just the way they attack you. And I find out later on, oh, they're bipolar and they're heavily medicated. Do, do you want to see my point? It, it seems like as though... Mm. And I should have made this point earlier when I was talking about some of these youth that are coming through, because I think we've certainly in Australia, I think we've come over the hump with that stuff. And they're not I don't think that they're prescribing. I certainly had this conversation with my GP a couple of years back. It's extremely difficult to get a kid prescribed Adderall these days or any of those psycho and, you know, those uh, methamphetamine based. Well, I think that's the right way of describing it, isn't it? Those those medications that are designed to keep a, a child's attention focused. Okay, they're basically saying, no, just because they don't fit in the mainstream class, this state school doesn't mean that they should be medicated and shoved back into that system. But I think a lot of it certainly comes down to, uh, and, and certainly my personal experience, again, has been that a lot of these hardcore lefties, they, they do have mental health disorders and, and diseases. And they're trying to represent that as a mainstream condition. When it's not, there's actually help available for them. It doesn't have to be in, in the form of this, this wokeness that they're forcing and foisting on everybody and telling us that you and I, because of the colour of our skin, are born racist and we can't help it. And God know with both of us having, I mean, you're outright Irish and I've got Irish heritage. 
has there been a more persecuted people in Western Europe than the Irish? For fuck's sake. I mean, you just have to have a cursory dive into history to understand how displaced and how um, it's exa- I can tell you for a fact it's the reason, and I know this through 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 family law. It's the reason why my family came out here from Ireland because of the persecution, the lack of access to economic means. And I, I, I get this shit. All these dickheads carry on about Australia's a convict colony or what have you. And it's like, well, do you understand why these people were convicts? Do you understand people were were largely of Irish heritage in the U, in in England were denied economic opportunity. So they had children and they had no choice but to do things like steal a loaf of bread. It was for things that simple that people were sent out here. It wasn't like as though they were stealing the, 90, the, 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 the 1790s equivalent of a car or something. It just wasn't happening. These people were trying to provide for their family. And, uh, sorry, it annoys me that point because you hear some Brits and some Kiwis and shit say that stuff about Australians and it's just fucking stupid. And it's uneducated, and it is, it's a willful ignorance of history and of human history and the suffering that that people have gone through. Um, but um, I guess I'll end that point there because I want to ask you one more question because I, I truly appreciate your time, Greg. It's um, it's magnificent. I haven't dived this deep into the rabbit hole before with anybody because nobody else has sort of got the uh, people might have had the mental bandwidth, but people don't want to sort of have this stuff out there because they're afraid of what's going to happen and. Um, so, so I'll that's make the part point. of the problem. Yeah. Well, that's what it is, isn't it? We're afraid of talking, but I'm at a point where I don't give a shit about social media. So if I get cancelled off social media, I don't care. All of my audience just comes through listening to the podcast. And the thing about the podcast is if, if I get cancelled on that platform, I'll just find another one to broadcast it. I've got all of my files. You know what I'm saying? And nothing mm. that I've said or that you've said is contrary to I, – I, I hate defending myself or, or, or our conversation like this, but my only disclaimer would be – would be that literally nothing that we've said is incidentary in any way, shape, or form. It's merely an expression of an opinion. But at the moment, as we know, with cancel culture and, and freedom of speech being, um, you know, this, the lefty thing, it'd be on the right side of history and it's hate speech and all this sort of shit, you know. It's not, it's not wrong speech, is hate speech, and it's not hate speech if you're defiling or demeaning anybody. We haven't demeaned a single group of people or a single person on this conversation here. Okay, if I'm like I was saying before about this, this trend for people uh, online to say about Australia as if we're some sort of um, bog Irish um, criminal, um, like a, a criminal settlement. Still to this day, they have literally. I listened to Barry Weiss, who I know is a right wing blogger of all people. She was on the New York Times, but she got cancelled from the New York Times. But she described us as a uh, as a homogenous culture. I don't, I don't bloody know where she was, mate. Because, <laughs> mate, you know, in Australia these days, it's it's incredibly. Um, there's there's all sorts of people here at this point. But sorry, I'll, I'll move on and make this final point for you. Okay, so I've hammered the lefties because they deserve it. QAnon though is ludicrous and insane as far as I'm concerned. I, I've spoken to a number of people that get into QAnon on the so-called right, but I don't even classify them as being on the right. I just think there's something else going on there. And uh, I've spoken to uh, a few people that have had uh, some fairly traumatic experiences in their life. And I think that I'm not not saying they're mentally challenged in any way, shape or form, but I see that they, uh, you know, a lot of the pedophile stuff, you know, the Pizzagate shit and all that sort of stuff, they identify with that because I think it helps them make sense of some of the stuff that they've been through. But the fact is, there's a complete lack of evidence. If that went on, there's a complete lack of evidence out there to support virtually any of the principles that these QAnon people keep talking about. 
Do you have a view on QAnon and and how the hell did that? I, I don't even know. It, it's it doesn't seem to have a point except that it's there's lizards running governments in 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 the world and uh, yeah, pedophile transdimensional pedophiles and shit. Do you, you understand what I mean? Like I can't, sorry, I'm tripping over my words a little bit because it's hard for me to get my head around how these people sort of arrive at these conclusions. But A, do you understand the QAnon thing? And, and B, why do you think people are so drawn to it? Oh, it's because it's another um, easy explainer. It's a bit like, um, you know, with the <clears throat> classic conspiracy theories, it ties all these loose ends together. So I've not looked at it in detail because what I learned about it, I just thought this is just repackaged stuff. Um, from the past, but people are drawn to, and I, I know that conspiracy theory gets used as a, you know, derogatory term for all sorts yeah. of perfectly, perfectly legitimate theories about what's occurring. It's a, it's a kind of a, a thought stopper. Um, but no, I, I think it's just one of these things that brings it all together. It's a grand narrative, and it means that people no longer have to really start thinking about what's going on because it's, it's all explained in this one convenient um, system as it were. So, and I think that is just yet another response to where we find ourselves in the the journey of our species at the minute, which is lots and lots of people are being assaulted from all sides um, with ideas, information, um, problems, issues, uh, personal and, you know, collective, and they just want it all to stop. And even if a conspiracy theory or any other sort of theory doesn't make it all go away if it accounts for it all then people at least feel like okay right so i know why um what's happening to me is happening now you know it's all explained here so whether they can do anything about it or not is another matter so i just think it's just yet another um convenient way of tying up a lot of loose ends and bringing a lot of disparate um threads together um uh, to basically try and make it all go away yeah, it's like the Trump thing. Um, I saw him as a symptom more than anything else. People just being fed up with a, with, with a system that's in place and wanting answers. And just you've you got to think that <laughs> how bad Hillary must have been and must must be for him to win an election against her with the odds that were stacked against him. Now, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have any skin in the game, so I'm not saying I support him or otherwise. There's no, no two ways about that. But I noticed in his, his farewell speech, he talked about, I've got plenty to share. Which of course, so I, I just occasionally I don't do it often, but occasionally I'll Google or go onto Twitter and just look at what the QAnon community are talking about. Of course, so that set it alight in the Reddit forums or what have you. But there's there's nothing that I've heard before or since, and I've spoken to some of these people as I say, and they were telling me as far back as four years ago that by 2000, so what's it, 2016? So by 2018, 2019, there'd be a bunch of these people, including Hillary Clinton, in jail. Of course, none of that shit ever happened. So it just seems to me like as if, yeah, I think you've nailed it, mate. It's, it's, it's just a comfort thing to think that these things are over the horizons. It's, it's, it's a make-believe thing. It's, an, it's part of their imagination. So rather than dealing with the, the, the real issues in the here and now, it gives them far more comfort to believe that it's kind of like a version of what the left do, isn't it? The big daddy, the government, somebody's going to come in and save us. The, I call it, and people... I, <laughs> the Star Wars vacation of our politics, you know, there's the dark side and there's the force. Like it's some ethereal thing that people can sort of tap into and, you know, Daddy Trump is going to come, is, is going to put away all of these bad people that they hate. It's like you guys have got the power in your own hands to make sure that this, that if you don't like Biden or 
Kamala Harris or Alexandria, Alessandria Asatio Cortez, or you know they call them the squad. You know the other two uh, ladies that are a member of the uh, the thing that uh, Alessandria, whatever her name is AOC. That's what that's why they call her that AOC. Are a part of. Then do something about it. You know, but but it's it, I, I know it's difficult. But you, but diving into this this weird shit is not going to help you in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, and this addresses, speaks to a lot of what we've been talking about, and I'd, I'd want to maybe just leave people with a couple of thoughts. Hmm. Individuals who are sovereign, empowered, and they feel secure in their own minds, and they have power over themselves, and they might even be in prison. They might even be in some kind of, you know, circumstances where externally they don't seem to have much control and a lot of people feel like that especially now i know that but sovereign individuals who are empowered within themselves they don't want control over other people they don't seek it you see what i mean people who Uh, seek power over other people are lacking something and the second thought is really that going forward from this moment it's always been the case but particularly at this time in history now going forward and i address this particularly to young people to, to all of us but particularly to young people in the the, the near and midterm future the, the what the world needs what our species would be calling for is people who are useful people who can make themselves useful to other people to society at large to the species at large and you have to ask yourself about a lot of these categories and subcategories of, of human activity and time wasting that we've been talking about. Is that useful? So for young people, think about that. What is what is going to help the species going forward? Is it going to be um, a gender studies professor? Maybe. I doubt it. God, no. No, the doctors, the, the doctors of philosophy, stop them. There's already enough. There's already enough of these uh, these so-called liberal uh, doctorates out there who insist, I might add, on calling themselves doctors. Have you seen that tweet thread where uh, the lady was getting onto an aeroplane and she was called ma'am and she said, pardon me, I'm a doctor. That says doc, or, or I think it was that or it didn't say doctor on her airline ticket. Whereas uh, when I was at uni, and my, I think all of the lecturers are doctors there or thereabouts, they're certainly uh, masters of their, of their craft, and literally, capital M. But doctors, but they're the ones in my experience when they got to exactly like what you're saying that they're sovereign entities that they they're captains of their own destinies and masters of their own ship. They're the first ones to tell you, no, my name's Jeff. You shall call me Jeff. I prefer that. You know, they they, they want that egalitarian approach to things. Um, but look, I, I tell you what, uh, Greg, you're a gentleman and a scholar. I, I can't recommend your. Can I call it a podcast series? I didn't see it on Spotify. I didn't check Apple, but is it a podcast series what you're doing? It is. I'm not on iTunes or Spotify at the moment because I just, you know, I don't have the, I haven't had the energy to get around to doing it. But I, <clears throat> along that you said earlier about you having all your own files, um, mm. I've always seen it as really important to have my own platform. That's why I've got legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com. You can spell legalize with an S or a Z. That's the main hub. Um, it's a it's a simple website, but it's got everything there. So mm. I will try and put myself on these other platforms when I get time. But in the meantime, whatever device you're using, you can download or stream the files there. There's um, well over 300 
shows there's there at the lots. minute and you'll, yeah. also, you'll also find uh, quite a lot of stuff on youtube uh, the youtube channels legalize freedom one and there there's material on there that is not on the main website uh, i do some pieces to camera there that are not on the website yeah i found you on on youtube i must say so i think a lot of people uh, look definitely owned content is better than um uh content that's on a, a third party like youtube or um or spotify or what have you so definitely encourage people to go and listen to what you've got to say over there but look people are creatures of habit and most people are on youtube so definitely put that number one it's not a word one it's number one after yeah, legalized legalized freedom freedom. just because I, could, yeah. I couldn't get legalized freedom that was taken so i had to add a number one <laughs> yeah no that's all good i just i just want to make sure that because you've got you've got so many topics there that will enlighten some of them are, are, are quite heavy in terms of i suggest if someone's uh driving or or uh, like you need to be a captive audience i think in order to follow what's going on but others you can actually put on in the background and sort of tune in every once in a while and still get lots of nuggets of truth and a lot of interesting content there so so mate, look it's been a pleasure to talk to you i've got to say i haven't had a podcast episode or a conversation like this in in years uh and uh, I'll sort of bring it full circle and say that um, it's uh, it reminds me a little bit of the conversation I had with Stuart in that we went sort of everywhere, but for completely different reasons and completely different topics. And if I can say one thing about that band, I will commend every person that I've ever interviewed from Cradle of Filth. Highly articulate. No, have a program, I like to call it. You know who you are as people. Um it just seems to be this weird thing with the band, but I mean, look at you, mate. I mean, you've got this—you've had this tremendous career since, and uh, I, I, I look forward to listening to many more episodes um, of your podcast series, and I will definitely try to listen to it on your own content rather than the other stuff. Legalize freedom. There you go. Well, thanks for the invitation, um, Andrew. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No worries. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject was Greg Moffat, a.k.a. Damien Gregory, the keyboard player in Cradle of Filth. And he's also got a podcast series. He's the host of Legalize Freedom. Thanks for tuning in.